Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1618 to 1631. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1618. Story number one. Moria taught by humans. Written by Kiri of Green. I'm in the place where I have to be. Closed eyes are spared from the visions of the world. Unending battle in my mind is a mere preparation to when the real one begins. Silence surrounds the screams of the imaginary enemies my head. With all four of my hands, I grab the present of my teacher remembering his words. Attack, then retreat. Evade, then ignore. Remember the words bestowed upon me. Remember the kindness of the one who guided me on this eternal trail of perfection. The stillness of the air surrounds the one ready for battle. I'll be the one to surround and end my enemy. Quiet signal shatters the weight as light pierces into my mind through my four eyes. It came once more, preying on the weak, only to find me. The corridor is dark and filled with people. They are hiding, watching me with reverence, whispering name under their breath. What else is left to them? Once I was just like them, shivering, running away. The long road I went took the wisdom from the death world, forged my will on the anvil of mind, broke what I was to rise from the ashes. When we met humanity, we learned of dangers yet unseen. Most of them are isolated in their world, or could be contained. But one, one, keeps hiding in plain sight. Humans, kind and rational race, embraced us in a friendly, warm hug. Yet this race was contaminated. Among them walked creatures. They look like humans, talk like ones, but they are devoid of something crucial, Malicious creatures who twist the logic till it screams in agony, who kill the words and play with the corpses just for amusement. Humans got used to them and react only when they start possessing the danger. Ha! How many of my own I saw crawling in tears, unable to grasp reality, after a few minutes of talking to one of those. We were vulnerable to them. But humans gave me the weapons. No! Turned me into the one. Made me more human. Now I'm the only thing that stands in their way. I exited the shades of the corridor and saw the good old Glorgi sweating with semi-transparent blue ooze. Tears are gathering in his eyes. Two pairs of hands grabbing each other over an unsuccessful attempt to stop shaking. I nod looking at him as if saying, You did well holding it back. Now it is my turn. He escapes into the safety of the corridor after stealing one last worry glance at me. Kind soul. The creature may take different forms, genders, and come at different shapes. This one, though, doesn't try to hide. It bears the most recognizable sign of its group. Blonde fur, shaped as an inverted bubble. Here it is, looking at me, recognizing me as just another prey. I demand to speak to the manager. Are you the one? 
Yes, I am. Name Seng, may I know your name? Miss. I am Karen Smith, and I have a complaint. Of course you are. And of course you have... Smile in my mind. What seems to be the problem, Miss Karen? Your employee sold me the toaster at full price, even though there is a poster which claims a discount counter attack. The poster also claims the last date of the sale is yesterday. Yet it still hangs there. Yet it's another day. Date doesn't matter. The poster is there. It rages. Send your ground. Date is there too. And it means that you are powerless. Yeah. Consumer rights act says that all the promotional materials on display are still valid. This one came prepared. I think as I gently touch Master's gift, a necktie. Teacher, give me the strength. Depends on the circumstances. You are breaching your company protocol. I am following it. Customer is always right. Not you. Not now. How dare you talk back to me? Oh, Miss Corrin, I'm merely answering your questions. You tried twisting the reason. You tried emotion. What's next? Do you think I like coming here? Your measly star barely has anything to offer. You are free to enjoy the choices provided by other stores. I will tell everyone I know about your service. Thank you for the free promotion. I will return, and we will welcome you. Enraged but defeated, it goes away, as will I in a moment, to prepare for the next one to come. My eyes still looking at the door, while my mind replays every word I said. Uh, is she gone? Poor Glog mustered the courage to return to the battlefield. One day he will achieve the name of... The Manager. He is one of the few who can handle the pressure. Yes, she is. I think she will return. There will be more than one of them, I am sure. What will we do? Let them come! On the death world, far or far away. Oh, Jeff, what you doing? Uh, reading a letter from Sengi. The alien part-timer dude who talked weird. Uh, do you keep in contact? Yeah, little rascal still remembers me. Jeff, uh, it was a year ago. Kind of hard to forget, don't you think? Shut up, and let me enjoy this moment. Even my family doesn't call me Venerable Master. Uh-oh. Listen to this. And when it came to the offensive, like a cornered monger, customer is always right. It proclaimed in a roaring voice, but the reply was swift and elegant, just like you taught me, master. Not you, and not now, I said. Damn, he should write books instead of selling toasters. The talk was finished abruptly, because of the scream from the shop. I demand to talk to your manager. End of story. Story number two. Toothbrushes? Really? Written by Speedhump23. Start of deposition by Dean of Federation University, Fetpole, Western Arm Zone. As we all know now, the planet Earth was contacted by representatives of the Galactic Federation about 15 standard years ago. After the normal shock and awe, relations are formalized. The Federation pointed out that Earth will not be allowed to artificially progress faster than their own calculated progress potential currently allows. Some areas are such as sanitation, environmental studies, food production, etc. are an exception, 
as these advancements allowed the planet to reach their potential much faster. The humans were slightly pissed at this, but when told the options are to accept it, or the Federation will be back in a hundred years to try again, acceptance was quick. After a thorough vetting process, a selected group of students from across the planet are invited to attend the local galactic university. These students are given limited upgrades to their personal equipment to make university life easier, such as better shoes, tooth cleaners, personal tablet AIs, etc. They then got transported to the university and assigned classes related to their approved progress areas and dorms. According to the toothbrush's instructions, the idea is you aim them at your teeth, select what needs to be removed, plaque, and then they clean your teeth for you. The comments from students say that this is the best clean, better than the dentist visit, without the power of drill fillings. Other upgrades, while mundane, were also welcome, such as the shoes. They are the most supportive and comfortable shoes the students have ever had. The tablet AIs were also very helpful. With universal translators, VR maps of the campus, and even easy-to-understand lesson plans. Sadly, the AI in the tablets would not divulge any tech beyond their level, no matter how much the humans asked. After a drinking party to welcome the students, one of them was back in his dorm when he discovered that with a bit of fiddling, the toothbrushes can also be used on target other materials. The inbuilt safety setting stops living flyforms in the galactic register being affected, as well as stopping important parts of your mouth being removed. But fortunately, no one thought to include material such as human females' bra clasps, the e-paper in textbooks, or the pants harness of the visiting vice-chancellor in the list. As a result, all humans had to hand back their teeth cleaners, but it was too late. Now the other race students had got the idea that various inappropriate wardrobe malfunctions were occurring daily. And on a personal note, do you have any idea how much it is going to cost to replace the dolls of my vintage ground transport? Due to losing their teeth cleaners, several of the human students asked the university's industrial design team to fabricate an old-fashioned toothbrushes for them and then later on the Federation students so that they could keep their dental hygiene going until Galactic Tooth Cleaner database was updated. It was soon noted that the extra time taken by the humans cleaning their teeth was astounding. It seems that the students were claiming that their old manual toothbrushes can take 30 minutes to do a proper job. In an understandable error, a design teacher who had talked to one of the human students about it suggested building electric toothbrushes to replace the manual brushes. The resulting handheld electric toothbrush was very good, with the students asking to send a few home to his poor, dentally challenged family. And that, Your Honor, is how the embargo on Fusion 4 technology was mistakenly broken with the humans. They only took two months to disassemble the power supply of the brush, reverse engineer it, improve, enlarge, and start mass-producing the Fusion 4 power generators. The ones they are now using to power their spaceships of a half the size and three times the efficiency of our current range. We have two options, stop all access to the university by humans to try and limit the damage, as it has been shown that our technology embargoes do not work. Or we have to give up and employ them to help us improve our current technology. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1619 Story number one. Fatal Mistake, written by H2J 1977. Planned Detco, Southern Continent, Contested Zone. 
the die truck commander stood in front of his still combat dirty platoon. Excellent work, everyone. The humans never saw our ambush coming. The first thing first, drink water, he said in command cadence. Second, place your mark on any trophies you acquired and display them in front of you to be catalogued. Commander Feck gave two commands in succession to open the ranks of his platoon and to release them to begin the process of marking and displaying their acquisitions. I will award a monetary bonus to the soldier with the highest captured rank insignia and another to the soldier with the highest overall valued haul. Feck was excited to see what they had walked away with. The unit they had ambushed was at least full platoon, but hadn't fought very well, being easily overrun and driven off. In the human convoy, he had seen soldiers carrying powerful weapons, a few good sets of combat armor, and a couple supply trucks, so the potential was almost limitless. A few more of these types of raids, and he would easily make his next promotion. His secondary eyelids covered almost three quarters of his eyes in a moment of pleasure before he regained his composure. His troops looked like they had completed marking and arranging their war spoils. Stand at attention, he barked bringing them back to the military decorum. Stand easy. The troops relaxed, moving their feet apart and clasping their claws, hands behind their back, eyes on the commander. Commander Feck marched to the first soldier, on the left in the first row. Describe your acquisition, sergeant. The sergeant listed off a combat armor chest piece, two human combat rifles, and the rank patches of a captain, a sergeant, and four privates. Remarkable work, Sergeant. I am almost certain that you've won the reward for captured rank insignia. The commander moved on down the line, cataloging each troop's captured items, rifles, armor pieces, grenades, and anti-armor weapon. Comms gear that, while valuable, was useless to them because of the human's encryption systems, and various ranking insignia from lieutenant to private. He started down the second row, noting that the sergeant of the squad had only a single grenade and a patch of a private. I'll need to instruct the other sergeants to provide him with uh, some physical encouragement. Squad leaders are held to a high standard, after all. He moved to the next soldier. Your turn, private. List your acquisitions. Commander Fact didn't expect much from Private to Feckle. He was new and not especially courageous. You'll be very pleased, Commander. I defeated one of their champions. Private DeFeckle beamed, proud of his accomplishments in today's battle. He had a rough time of things since joining the unit. He wasn't the biggest or strongest die truck, and had lost more than one trophy to his stronger or more ferocious seniors. Private, the human forces don't have champions. Have you already forgotten the rank chart that you were instructed to memorize when you were assigned this platoon? No, sir. But, but they have a special insignia, in addition to their rank, which was only sergeant. It was a large and colorful, so I figured that they had to be a champion if they weren't concerned with the camouflage and was specifically marked. Commander Feck had a sick feeding in his stomach. Please, 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 all the guards of conquest and war, don't let this be what I think it is, he thought to himself. His scaly lips parted slightly, his forked tongue flicking in the air. His mouth had instantly gone completely dry. Show me this insignia, Private. The Private reached down and picked up the standard combat helmet. For a moment, Commander Feck felt relief. Perhaps this Private really was just stupid and didn't know the basics of human military structure. The Private then turned the helmet around, proudly displaying the emblem on the front of it. Commander Feck's heart started racing. 
and he reflexively clenched his fist. There it was, the white circle with the red plus sign. I'm going to need to instruct the sergeants to do more than a basic corrective training for his squad leader. The private should have known better. Command effect stepped into full attention. Sergeant Cookie on me now! The sergeant at the left of the row stopped to attention, took a step forward, turned and marched to the commander, stopped and assumed a position of attention again, his eyes nervous. The nictating membrane started to slide forward. Sergeant, can you explain to me why the private here killed a human medic and took his helmet as a trophy? Sergeant Gurky felt his guts drop down to his deep pit. He was going to lose everything because of this moronic private. He thought for a moment, had he gone over this? Drek, I didn't get to it with this new private. I figured he'd be dead after the first skirmish. Sir, I apparently neglected to instruct him on this particular classification in the human military and its significance. Private DeFeckle's feelings of accomplishment was gone now. All he felt was fear. He had messed up somehow. And badly, Sir, why is killing one of the medics such a bad thing? Sergeant Gookie slapped Private DeFeckle so hard that the skin between the scales and the Private DeFeckle's face instantly turned to bright red. You do not speak unless told to do so, Private. We're all as good as dead because you thought that you could take on a human champion and win. Human medics are non-combatants. They wade through the battlefield, tending to the wounded and dragging them to safety with no concern for their own lives. Equipped with only a small caliber sidearm. Therefore, the humans hold their medics to be sacrosanct. To harm or kill one is to unleash rage and ferocity like you have never seen before. Command Effect snapped. It is a little late for that explanation now, Sergeant. Command Effect pushed Sergeant Kuki towards his original position in the row and proceeded to walk out of formation, ignoring military decorum. Stand to attention, he barked. Leave your trophies in place. Get your assigned defensive positions and observation posts. They'll be coming, and they will be mad as hell. Private DeFeckle, Sergeant Gookie, you stay behind. Looking to the sergeant in the front row, Commander Feckle said, Sergeant Lopuff, you two dismissed. As then the sirens began to wail. It was too late. Sir, we've got contact on the north and west sides of the warehouse. Kish, they brought a Shinigami gunship. Small arms fire beat against the north and west side of the building. But that wasn't the problem. They could hide within the maze of warehouses and try to wear down the close quarter combat. But the Shinigami gunship meant almost inescapable death. Command effects side, it had been going so well. A massive explosion on the east side of the building told him the Shinigami was engaging with its artillery cannon. Humans were frighteningly creative in warfare. Who else would mount an artillery cannon, multiple chain guns, and even a micro-railgun onto the airframe that was designed to loiter over a combat zone and simply lay waste to anything that opposed it? Broadcast full surrender, lay down your arms. Sergeant Lopuff, take Sergeant Kuki and Private DeFeckle into custody. If we're extremely lucky, they'll accept our surrender and we'll leave here as prisoners of war. If not, I will see you in hell, Private. End of story. Story number two. Most powerful species in the galaxy. Written by Brew Fugger. We are the birds. The most powerful species in the galaxy. Our power reaches all six billion stars in the galaxy. Our probes detected an FTL signature in the galaxy's skirts. A world we surveyed millions of years ago without anything of interest. And now... FTL 
Even with FTL, the trip would take months. We have prepared a diplomatic mission. We are the most powerful race in the galaxy, but we are not completely tyrants. We only send one armada in case our terms are not reasonable for them. After we left for real space, we found them on a blue planet, two space habitats and some spaceships building something. We parked our ships in the shadow of the moon so they couldn't see us and listened for a few days to give our computers time to decode their language. After days, we salute them. This ambassador, King of the Perts, we came in peace with offers as my ship orbits the planet. The answer was in our own language. We are human. We are an explorer race and we just want to know the secrets of the galaxy. We just ask that you leave us alone. That was not an option now. We are not tyrants, but we demand tribute. Most species accept our terms and those that don't end up doing the same thing in chains. Then our fleet came out of the satellite's shadow. They will now met the most powerful fleet in the entire galaxy and will surely surrender. Then one of the buildings they had lit up and they had received transmission. The Andromeda and Milky Way fleets are on their way to reinforce your positions. We are the Perts, the most powerful race in the large megalanic cloud galaxy. The most powerful race in the local group, as they call it. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1620 Way of the Blade, written by Speedhump23 Seavorth is a blademaster. A blademaster is one of the highly trained leaders of the scouting parties launching the initial attacks on the third planet of the Yellow Sun system. Today had been a strange day. His initial response to his lord's question of where is half your unit had not been met well. Bowing and exposing his neck to the battle lord, the overall commander in charge of subjugating this planet, Seavorth waited for the ornate blade his lord carried to nick his neck. A slow and painful death could await him as he slowly bled out. Only the will of the gods would stop the bleeding. As he waited, he wished for the chance to expand his purport. It would mean life and death, or probably future victories for his people. If he got permission to speak before the blade nicked his hide, the blade paused, explained your defeat. Seaborth's party had landed without being seen by any of the locals. Their optically cloaked scoutcraft had landed just outside a small town, away from the brightly loud area. The translator deciphered the local script on the metal sign on the outskirts of the town, said, Welcome to Fredericksburg, Texas. Try our beer. Scanning as they descended, Seaborth confirmed again that the optical transmission seemed to be limited to illumination only. These poor beings did not even have long-range optical blast communication. This would be a walkover. The building they had selected for the demonstration seemed to have 30 of the locals inside, seated and standing, and a lot of optical and audio noises coming from the entrances. Several of their ground transports were located outside, many with brightly colored signs on them, obviously flags of a familiar alliance. It was odd to see so many different family groups gathered together in such a remote location, unless it must be a wedding or bonding of families. 
Seawolf's unit decloaked at the entrances, moving in as well-trained unit they were. The screams were to be expected. Good. They were in awe of the monoblades howled by his forces. The translator howled by Seaforth's second started, broadcasting the pre-recorded optical flashes of subjugation in the universal language, telling the locals about the invasion and about the terms of the blade demonstration. The multiple explosions which tore Seaforth's second part were more than his ears could deal with. Seaforth managed to keep standing, but several of his unit lost eardrums to the sounds, two falling to the ground in pain and shock. Retreating from the building, the scout unit left three behind, a dishonor that would stain his life for a long or short time to come. Retreating to their ship, one of the unit forgot to re-engage their cloak, and just fell apart as the explosions came from the building. Whatever had happened, the battle lord must be told. Launching from the car park, the ship was moving so fast, it went straight past the two circling jets who had been scrambled from a nearby airfield to investigate the unidentified object seen falling towards the town. Summary of the Way of the Blade Data Review Imperatus Period 25-548-2 Blades are the most terrifying weapon in the explored galaxy. No being wants to have to try and deal with a cut from a war blade. The slow or fast loss of vital fluids leads to a painful death unless the gods decide to help. A serious cut is beyond even the help of the gods, and always leads to death. Some invasions have finished with just an explanation party demonstrating their blade's power to cut deep through the defending forces' shields. Attacking uninformed planets was always a trial, which is why the scout forces would find random areas to test their blades on the poor population. The news of the scouting attack would spread panic amongst the population, and the invasion could proceed as normal. Standing behind Seavorth as he bowed his neck, Fep expected his report to be received with similar response from the Battle Lord. Well, it was true that the Fep scout unit had been all returned. They all had failed to successfully demonstrate their blade's power to the simple group that they had selected. The response the locals had delivered had terrified the Fep to the core and he hoped the Battle Lord would not kill him on hearing it. The Femps unit had landed in the northern end of one of the southern landmasses, selecting a small settlement. They had approached a mid-sun period. The cloaked scouts had started by surrounding the structures with the most people in it. The structure had several very dusty ground vehicles around the outside, each with a small crew cab at front and a flat area, probably for cargo, at the rear. Small four-limbed animals had been sitting in many of the cargo areas, but the cloaks worn by the scouts had hidden them from even these animals' senses. Although the smaller four-limbed animals, which had been hissing at the chained-up larger animal, had looked right at him, hissed, and then walked back to sit in the shade under a transport. The Fefts unit had decloaked after surrounding the humanoids, the translator package had started flashing the blade message, and the locals had dropped their small black spheres that they were rolling across the green ground to stare at the unit. One local had started yelling at the scout, who had the decloak on the green grass, yelling at him while pointing at his clawed feet. The motions were to move him off the grass. The FEP could not understand it. The scout was a good 20% taller than the possibly female and quite old local who was dressed in white. She showed no fear of the blade. Was this some sort of religious activity? 
All the people on the green surface were in white. Defip told these scouts to move off the green surface so as to not offend the local gods. As scouts leader, he did not want to offend the locals before they were subdued. He turned to his second and told him to replay the message. In time, the flashes from the messages, the unit displayed their finger-long blades shining in the light, turning the metal of the razor-sharp blades to shine reflected sunlight on the locals. The blades were shaped to play the sounds of victory with the pulsed light waves coming off of them. This display of their blades had subjugated dozens of worlds in the past. The display of polished metal showing the molecular thin blades which could cut anything. It seemed that none of the locals could understand the song of victory, but a few were looking at the second and turning their heads to actually putting dark lenses across their eyes, possibly in an attempt to shield themselves from the terrifying blade display. Some were even turning heads from the message. The optical track looped again, yet none of the locals seemed to understand what was going on. Realizing that these locals must be some sort of partially blind religious cult, Defep looked around and tried to find a warrior to demonstrate the blade song and secure a surrender for these landmass. As he looked around, the glass doors on the side of the building beside the grass area opened. The local that walked out was dressed differently to the religious caste. This local looked to be a worker. He was dusty, had a covering on his head and well-worn clothes, stopped just at the edge of the green religious area. The worker looked at the Feps' impressive scout group. Locals would always cower when seeing the sight of the scout party for the first time. The bright yellow fur, with black and green battle dress, protecting the vital parts of the scouts from the sharpest blades. The local worker looked from one scout to the other looking at the blades carried by the scouts, shining in the sunlight, watching as the optical message for the demand for surrender was played again and again, calling on them to surrender, or the use of blades would be allowed. The message flashed the warning that the defeated locals would become slaves for the Empire, or be cut and left to die slowly of fluid loss. Walking towards the Vep, the local looked at the blade in his hand, and then did something which would haunt the leader for the rest of his life. He did what could only be described as... He laughed, and he spoke something to the scout leader. Odd Eth was the aide to the Battle Lord. This was an honorable task for one as young as she was. Her clan had helped to produce some of the finest battle dresses for generations, and this work had allowed her the honor to aid the commander. Her main job was to recall the reports of victory from the scouts a task that she had completed many times before. Today, this job was taking a different turn. The report from the scout leader, Sir Voth, described locals not even waiting for surrender message to be played before somehow killing half the scouts and injuring most of the rest of the unit. The images captured by the unit's armor showed small devices being pointed at the second within moments of him decloaking and starting the broadcast. The bright flashes from the explosions wiped out the optical recorders, but they did give him a hint of something. Hot Earth thought that it must be a noise-generating device causing the eardrums of the scouts to rupture, and the second must have died when the broadcaster overloaded due to the optical input. The report from Defep was one that she would hope to tell her family, unless the Battle Lord killed her to keep his defeats secret. There had never been such a response to a blade display before. It had been honed through hundreds of displays, 
and the Scots practiced the moves for years before they were allowed to use it in battle. The locals not only seemed to rebuff the demands, but had not seemingly informed others of their interactions with the Scots. The lack of long-range communications was a mystery. Some small coherent lights were noticed being used in space, but no optical flash communications at all. Were these locals so blind that they could not see high-spectrum lights? They seemed to rely entirely on wired communication, and some other method a battle lord scientists could not understand. For their distance communication, the satellites which had been retrieved for examination seemed to have many cameras, but the dish-shaped objects on them were causing the technicians so many sleepless nights. The battle lord's deliberations on the fate of Sivoth and Defep were interrupted by the proximity alarms. A small ship approaching the flagship was totally dark, with no running lights on it at all. It was only lucky observation from a technician that detected the object on the optical scanners. The surface of the craft had obscured a distant star, which had triggered the alarm. Parking in front of the battleship, the small craft started to flash a small beam of light at the flagship. It was counting basic numbers and then complex ones. The flagship computers took over communications and after several rotations announced that their language had been deciphered. The standard decree of death by blade was transmitted, which caused a pause in the communication, then a few follow-up questions about exactly what they meant. It turned out that the locals exclusively used sound wave vibration instead of optical flash to communicate between themselves and radio waves from distant communication. While all races could hear, light flash communication was superior, and the race of the blade often forgot other methods existed. The battle lord looked at the translator display of the message. We apologize for the deaths of several of your first contact team. It was in no way an official response from our government or planet. The locals were surprised by the sudden appearance of your unit and reacted out of fear. The response from the Australians to your team are also apologized for. The person who mocked your scout leader has been disciplined and told to put it in in the future. Examining the recording of your messages, we feel trade treaty may be better for you than an invasion. We offer access to knowledge that you do not have, such as medical procedures to close wounds, as well as ranged weaponry. For defensive purposes, of course, we hope to hear from you soon, but are prepared to respond if you continue to attack our planet. The battle lord turned to Defep and asked him again what an Australian had said. Lifting his head, Defep just said, With the aid of a new translation, it makes more sense now. The warrior cast came out of the building. He looked at our battle blades and according to the translation said, That's not a knife. And then drew a huge blade almost as long as my arm and said, This is a knife. Then cut my battle harness. I think uh, we, we should take the trade deal. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1621. The Planet Still Burns. Written by H2J1977. Hey, Kef, come over here and tell my new friend Thick about the humans. Boyt pulled out a stool between himself and his new Vyolgari acquaintance. Kef and Boyt were both headlocks and still somewhat new to the asteroid mining camp. They spend most of their days off at the Rockbreaker the only place for R&R on the asteroid. The bar could barely qualify as such, in truth. There was a physical bar, stools, a few impoverished tables, and a mismatch of chairs. There was a music box, but it was broken for the third time this cycle. 
The Grembeck's bartender, Dervan, casually cleaned glasses, the bar top, and scanned the room for customers needing something. His younger sister was supposed to be the waitress tonight, but she had messaged him just before opening that she would be out tonight, supposedly sick. He knew that she was most likely with her new boyfriend, one of the shift leaders, another Grembex, and a decent guy from everything he'd seen and heard. Not that it helped him handle his patrons. Derivan, who had heard humans before from a few other miners over the years, they seemed like the stuff of legend and hearsay. Feats of heroism, mongering, shrewd negotiations, and prone to wide variety of quirks. But the one thing he did know for a fact was that they had invented the wormhole drive and connected a huge portion of the galaxy through commerce and politics. But not this sector of space, yet. Darivan passively watched as the second headlocks took the seat offered to him by his friend. He decided that he would listen in on the story while he worked. The bar was otherwise empty for the moment, so he figured he may as well keep himself entertained. Kef extended his six-fingered hand to shake the Yalgari's hand that was covered in green scales and attached to an arm that was covered with fine, almost hair-like feathers that ended at the wrist. The handshake had become a universal greeting amongst the races who interacted with humans or even just human-associated species. I am Kef. Uh, greetings. Sig returned the handshake, taking care not to scratch Kef's hand with his thumb claw. Boyt tells me you interacted with humans directly. That you were on Jitova Minor, where it burned. If you don't mind, retaliate getcha, please enlighten me. I was still a fledgling school when that happened. Well, I can't imagine that you were much older. Derivan's interest was piqued at this point, his gazelle-like ears twitching before turning towards the conversation to better hear it. The Jutova Minor Cataclysm was probably 15 years ago. He'd heard that nearly the whole planet burned, and that over a thousand beings died on the colony world in the disaster. He'd also heard that the humans were credited with rescuing most of the colonists. But I don't mind. I was lucky. My whole family got off the planet safely thanks to the humans, but I guess I should give you some more background first. Jitova Minor was a moon circling the gas giant Jitova Prime. My parents had relocated there just as the colony was founded. About ten years before everything went to hell. It was rich in minerals, fuel gases, and had the biggest deposits of Drevo gems that had ever been discovered. It was a boom colony. Within five years, there were over a hundred thousand colonists staking claims, working for mining companies or just homesteading somewhere far away from the rest of civilization. That number had grown to over 250,000 at the time of the incident. We didn't know it at the time, but the planet's topsoil had some strange composition to it. I don't remember exactly what it was, but there was something in the soil that did not like one of the chemicals used in processing the Drevo gems. The mining company did know or at least found out long before the rest of us. All of the company officers on the planet that survived ended up going to prison over their part in the disaster. Clarion Mining Conglomerate was a company based out of our homeworld with Sawabi. Kef squinted and snorted, his concept for the carelessness on display. But I hadn't heard that part before. 
Thick said, surprised. I knew that there was something dangerous about the way they were processing the gemstones, but kept it a secret. I guess that's a story as old as industrialization, though. Uh, profits before morality. That's the thing, Kev said. If they had just come clean up front, then it probably wouldn't have been an issue, because we could have taken proper precautions to prevent accidents and set up evacuation plans in case of an accident. It was the cover-up that was the real issue, and that's why the Planetside Director is still rotting in jail 15 years later. Kef looked at his empty drink and held it up to the bartender, asking for a refill. While Derivan mixed and poured the new drink, Kef continued, Anyway, about ten years ago, the main Drevo processing plant had an accident and spilled over a million gallons of the chemical that gave the Drevo gems their unique luster. The soil itself chemically combusted, and the fire started spreading rapidly. If I recall, no one at the processing plant survived the fire because it burned so fast and hot that they just never stood a chance. Within hours, kilometers of soil were burning. Investigations later determined that if it weren't for the wind patterns that time of year, the whole colony would have burned within a day. Kef sipped his refilled drink, nodded to the bartender, and thought for a second before continuing. But you wanted to hear about the humans, so let me get to that part. Within a day, the fire had burned millions of acres of land, and not just burned, glassed. The fire was so hot it melted metal structures, caused rocks to explode from superheating the moisture trapped in them, and fused the silicates in the soil. We sent out distress calls on our communications network, but we were on the far side of Jechoba Major, and it was blocking most of our signals. Fortunately, there was a human running a small outfitting company in the colony, and they had a Q-net and a wormhole-drive-capable ship. They raced all planets, stating that they would get help from the human-aligned planets, the Galactic United Senate. We waited with the planet literally burning around us for a full day. The local government sent police out to collect the homesteaders, wildcatters, and anyone that wasn't living in the colony itself to streamline the rescue effort. Some beings, like the mining executives, had spacecraft with FTL drives. They were able to get off planet, but it would take them months before they reached civilized space. There was more than one violent encounter over getting onto those ships. Kef looked between Point and Thig for a moment, remembering one instance where a corporate shuttle was swarmed by panicked colonists. Over a hundred beings died when that overloaded ship crashed moments after takeoff. He decided to leave that part out. On the second day, the fire had grown so big that they were creating their own wind currents, and that turned the flames back towards the colony. Around one in the afternoon planetary time, we got a message from a human businessman. Everyone needed to get to the colony as soon as possible, as the rescue ships would begin arriving in minutes. Kef looked at them both again and continued. True to his word, five minutes, the ships began appearing out of nowhere in the sky above the colony. At first, it was just some smaller vessels, but then frigates and huge cargo haulers started appearing. Within an hour, the thousand ships had jumped in system. An advance party landed and met with the colony leaders and emergency services chiefs. As impressive as their response time and the sheer magnitude of it was, it was the next thing they did that saved thousands of lives that otherwise would have been lost. 
humans have a unique type of firefight as they call smoke jumpers. By the end of the second hour, hundreds of humans deployed in front of the approaching wildfire. They started digging trenches and spraying thousands of liters of some sort of flame retardant in several meter white bands. The really crazy thing is that they already knew this wouldn't really stop the fire. When the ground itself is a fuel source, how can you even stop that? But that wasn't their intention. They went out there putting themselves directly in the path of the flames just to slow it down long enough to get everyone evacuated. Derivan willed himself silent, despite wanting to lean in and ask questions. Humans were crazier than he'd even heard about. But they had jumped in to help a colony on the other side of the galaxy that they didn't even know at a moment's notice. That more than made up for the recklessness. Kef noticed Derivan was drawn in by his story, but didn't mind the extra attention. Some stories were worth sharing with anyone that would listen. While the smoke jumpers were fighting the incoming wall of fire, the smaller ships began ferrying the colonists up to the larger freighters and transport ships. Thousands of beings were being evacuated by the hour. The air became thick with smoke and toxic fume as the wildfire closed in on the colony. It got so bad that everyone was ordered to get into one of the emergency shelters or any building that had air scrubbers. The main hospital, a few of the corporate buildings, and the only reason those air scrubbers installed was because of the contractual obligations with their vendors. They weren't really needed by the Jatova miner. I remember being crowded into a mini-company's logistics building with what seemed like an impossible amount of people for a relatively small area. Once we got to this point, the fires were starting to reach the farthest edges of the colony itself. Beings were all crammed together in little more than clothes on their backs in most cases, and everyone was getting hungry and thirsty. But the humans had come prepared, or had quickly orchestrated bringing supplies in once it was clear that people were losing access to the essentials. Pallet upon pallet of bottled water and emergency meals seemed to just materialize and then never run out. Their ability to organize all of this in the middle of a chaos was beyond anything I've ever seen before. While I was waiting to be evacuated, stories started bubbling up about several pockets of colonists that hadn't returned to the main colony compound when the evacuation order was given. Thig interjected, astonished, Wait! You mean that there were all groups of colonists that just stay behind, ignoring the evacuation order? I assume they were the main source of the casualties? Kef snorted in the display of amusement. You would think so. And by all rights, it would have made sense. Other beings wouldn't have poured resources into tracking down the colonists that disobeyed the evacuation order, or couldn't be reached by the police, or refused to leave their homes while facing imminent danger. But that's not the case for the humans. They just started sending ships out in search patterns. Apparently, riding out the storm is a common human behavior, so they didn't think anything of it. Within a few hours, nearly all of the unaccounted for colonists had been located, and they rescued or marked for pickup as soon as the shuttle was available. A brief cloud of sadness crossed Kef's expression. Not all of the rescues went off without incident, though. According to the articles that came out afterwards, we found out that six human-flown rescue shuttles didn't make it back. Some got caught up in the fires, 
Some crashed when their engines were clogged by the ash and debris. And one didn't make it out because the pilots succumbed to a heart attack, trying to rescue a family that had gotten trapped in their home by fallen support beams. He was the only human to lose his life in the whole operation. Derevan finally slipped up and spoke out. A heart attack? How does that happen with beings in the business of rescue operations? Realizing what he'd done, he threw his hands up apologetically. I'm sorry, didn't mean to interject, but I've just been fascinated with this whole story. Kef blinked a few times before realizing what the confusion was. Oh, the human that died was elderly for their kind, uh, in his seventies, I believe, and he wasn't in the business of rescue operations. He apparently was a retired factory worker. In fact, none of the humans were in the business of rescue operations. They were all civilians. Thig spoke up again. Wait, you mean to say that civilians were pulling off this big rescue operation on their own? This wasn't a government or military mission. Kev chuckled. That is exactly right. Apparently natural disasters are a common thing on their home world, and many of the worlds they've colonized throughout the galaxy. So much so that there are quite a few unofficial rescue organizations dedicated to various types of disasters in different parts of their territory. It turns out that when the human merchant went back to the GUS space and asked for help, the government didn't really jump to the aid of the unaligned planet. Like any government, they needed to have emergency meetings, committees, emergency authorizations, emergency spending bills. The GUS is comprised of over a hundred different races and at least as many different agendas. But the merchant just started reaching out to those private citizen organizations. I think I heard them referred to as the Redneck Navy or the Cajun Navy. It actually took the GOS over a week to get the first shipping system. By then, the fires had already claimed the colony and hundreds of millions of square kilometers of land. In fact, that planet is still burning to this day in some places, because every time they try and put it out, it just comes back again from some hidden pocket of soil that was still burning deep underground. Thig pulled out his comm device and tapped a couple buttons. Hey, Peter, sorry to bother you this later. I need you to work up some job postings for emergency services coordination and rescue operators. No, no, no one quit. No, 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 there isn't anything that I know about it. I just want to be proactive and mark the job postings to go over to the GOS QNET and specifically request humans. I know, I know, we can't technically do that, but uh, do what you can. Maybe direct the postings to be prioritized for human worlds. Uh, why, uh, it's a bit of a long story. I'll fill you in tomorrow before the board meeting. Thig deactivated his device and noticed the confused stares from him's new companions. Oh, didn't I properly introduce myself? I am Thigagal Squasqua, and the incoming director of mining operations. I like to come down to these recreation areas and get a feel for the crew and the overall personality of the job site before I actually take over the role. I hope that you won't hold my little mission against me. Tell you what, I'll put in a good word for you and your foreman. See if they can't get you some light duty ships as an apology. How does that sound? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1622 Story number one. Pike and Shot, written by Whiskey Lullaby. Every race on Earth was given something special by the gods. The elves were granted near immortality and a great affinity for magic. 
They used this to build great sorcerer kingdoms, ruled by their most powerful mages, who could conjure forth storms of fire with but a sword. However, they began to seek only ever more power, their pride consuming them. The dwarves, equally long-lived, had an affinity for the earth and wisdom. They built great wealth in their mountain keeps, and with the mastery of metals and enchanting, rivaled the elves in power. Strong traditions kept the dwarves unified against all invaders for eons, but made them slow to change and adapt. The orcs were given raw strength, a warrior cunning. The weakest orc can crush stones with their fists. Many a commander has made a mistake of confusing their brute strength with a lack of intelligence, and paid the price when they were not only outmatched, but outmaneuvered. Unfortunately, this also meant unity was difficult to maintain, as every warrior sought to be the head of their own clan, fife, or kingdom. The goblins were given intelligence and irrepressible life force. The goblins have cemented their strength despite their weakness and diminutive stature, with mad inventions and sheer numbers, and they are surprisingly sturdy. However, most sparks, as the inventors are called, are less than stable. They jump from one concept to another, leaving machines half-finished and snapping together dangerously volatile items with no forethought. It is said that the reason the goblins haven't overrun the other races is the abysmal attrition rates caused by inventions going wrong. For a long time, mankind had been viewed as inferior to all of these races. We could not match the dwarves in smithing or enchanting, for even their apprentices had more experience than our greatest. We could not match the owls in magic. As a game, many of their wizards had been training for the equivalent of generations. The orcs were simply better warriors by nature, often putting their militias against professional human armies as mere training. As for the goblins, we simply couldn't match their pace. They have short gestation periods and matured rather quickly comparatively, and combined with their penchant for mad science, had a nebulous advantage over us. However, our race is adaptable. Instead of being specialists, we settled for being good enough. Our enchanters don't need great city-destroying masterworks. They just need to make useful changes to weapons, tools, and equipment. Our smiths didn't need to work with legendary metals or special materials. All they had to do was produce what was needed with what was available. Our mages gave up on matching the elves in power and scope, instead focusing on their talents and specializing, and learning how to make what spells they had more effective. Our inventors looked to the goblins, and instead of jumping from one new concept to the next, focused on improving and reproducing what already existed. Tempering their craft with wisdom and forethought, we came to understand our technologies in and out, and built manufactories to produce them en masse. Using these new techniques, standardized equipment, specialized magic, and useful enchantments, our soldiers became more than a match for the orcs. With muskets, they could not close the range one foot, and with proper pikes, neither could they close with mounts. With proper cannons, the competent gunnery, the great mountain keeps of the doors were shelled to ruin before they could even muster their invincible armies. 
The specialist mages tore down the greatest of towers of the elven mage lords, taking the great mages out with cunning strategies and well-placed spells, leaving no room for large-scale spells, and forcing a flustered great mages to do what they hadn't done in centuries. Think of their feet. The goblins caused significant casualties with their inventions, but had no unity of equipment quality. Despite their numbers, once their best inventors were either killed or captured, we could simply replace our lost equipment, while they scrambled to build one war-ending weapon after another, many of which failed and exacerbated their own losses. This focus meant their troops had little proper gear to fight with, which only quickened their defeat. For now, humanity stands at the apex of this world, having risen from the shadows of the other races to bask in the sun, having proven themselves. However, this is my warning. None of the peoples we have defeated were stupid. Our newfound independence was purchased with pike and shot, and can only be maintained by eternal vigilance. Humanity must continue to adapt, to learn lessons from those we walk this world with, lest we make the same mistakes they did and crumble as their ancient kingdoms did. Lord Militant Hasha, in an address to the newly founded Bardom of Lekman. End of story. Story number two. Human Weakness, written by Dragonson04. The following was extracted as a corrupted audio file from a downed Nivudian ship. Parts were indecipherable and the timestamps seemed to be randomized or possibly scrambled. What remained has been translated to local proximities, denoted by brackets. Each segment, beginning and ending in quotation marks, denotes a different speaker. We thought that this backwater planet would be easy to conquer. We thought that we had the means to wipe out these humans. We were wrong by the ancestors. We were wrong. We began our war long before any official declaration was issued by studying the planet and all that it had housed. That should have been our first clue that we were in over our carapaces. Every last thing we tried proved ineffective. We thought the humans would be weak to toxins and venoms and poisons from our hive world, as they seemed to be weak to the same from theirs. A few abductions and tests in small groups proved us the fools. The most potent plant-based poison that we had access to caused mild intestinal distress in all subjects, all subjects produced a chemical gas out of their primary solid waste disposal orifice that, in proper concentrations, could be weaponized. It is not advised to continue with food or liquid-based poisons. Further analysis of the gas should also not be pursued. The idea of mental and emotional exploitation to find weakness has resulted in the destruction of an entire garrison and the loss of ten interstellar vessels. They take the capture of their young as a serious offense. Most of the garrison was unidentifiable. Physically, 
They are superior to us, no denying that fact. They are five times taller than us, as for the difference in strength. I saw five of them flip an entire dropship like it was nothing. I am convinced that one would have done the job, but needed the other four to handle the awkward shape of the craft. As we were fighting on their world, we could not move around as normal. Our only advantage, and a very slim one at that, is our numbers. However, even an unarmed, unarmored human can take fifteen of us at once. Why are we on this ancestor-forsaken place? Did the Queen not know of them, of their strength, of their... Our stings cannot pierce their elastic skin. All attempts that envenom them directly have failed. We will find some human weak glory too. Our own venom applied directly to the skin of the humans produces a mild rash on all subjects, itching, bumps, and mild swelling, comparable to local insect bites known as uh, a mosquito. A topical cream is sufficient to neutralize the effect. It seems that we cannot find, by all of our efforts in the past year, any human weakness that we can safely exploit. Perhaps there will be someone in the galactic community who will be able to find one, but we cannot. With this final discovery, I, the Admiral of the Fleet, do hereby order all ships and all survivors to fall back. This planet is not worth the losses incurred, as we have no lasting or powerful enough advantage to maintain this fight. And, even more horrifying, they have discovered that we taste like chicken, and have begun to hunt us. Flee while you can, and hope they cannot reverse-engineer the FTL drives and navigation systems on the ships that they have stolen. Reverse engineer? What a good idea! Admiral Johnson laughed as the audio log ended. And I want to know who found out those bugs taste like chicken. That seems barbaric. Oh, that part wasn't real. At least from our end, sir, Captain D said. That was a bit of us trying to figure them out. We used propaganda and exploited their weakness. Once we make our debut on the galactic stage, we'll have to clear that up. Uh, though uh, the damage may already be done. Humans will be looked at as unstoppable, natural chemical weapon producing voracious monsters from hell. Indeed. Uh, to think that a bit of gas attack would be literal in their case. Well, uh, I want a full report in a week on the initial breakdown of those ship systems. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1623. Story number one. A scavenger's story. Written by Barsoom Israel. It was bitterly cold, that much I remember. I was huddled in the corner of what was once my house. Now it was just a pile of smoldering rubble and shattered memories. I was long past crying, even at a young age of sixteen sons. This war had a way of putting things into perspective. House destroyed? That was nothing to cry about after seeing your father dragged from it and shot with a plasma pistol. No food. Why cry over that when you and your friend had taken up to scrounging for tidbits in refuge piles and he was unlucky enough to be caught by one of the guard beasts the crone had used to watch their perimeters? 
I still hear his screams fading to a wet, gurgling sound when I close my eyes at night. Hungry, homeless, those were a blessing to what the Corone could do if they caught me. Those were not worth wasting tears on. We fought them, though. Oh, how we fought them. I joined the planetary militia, and we made them pay for every inch of our homeworld as they claimed it for their own. In the end, there were too many of them. Their technology was too strong. Their malice and cruelty too deep. We lost. Our armies were scattered. We lost our homeworld and our identity as a species. The Drevan, as we were once known as, was simply no more. Well, I guess that is not entirely true. There were still some of us, hiding in the shadows, stealing what we could to stay alive from one sun to the next. Fearing every sound, every movement caught out of a corner of our eye. If this was living, I did not want it anymore. But there was always that spark, that flame in my chest that refused to let me lay down and die. No matter what the cost, it drove me to survive. Now species all had this fire in our gut, even when we knew it was hopeless, even when death was certain we fought. We were not above asking for help, if there was anyone to offer us it. Our first indication that we were not alone in the universe was the crone deadships appearing at our skies and raining black fire down on us. As we fought, we hoped that if there were races like the crone out there in the everlasting black, there might be others, other races that fought against them, another race that may be able to offer us help or support. Our first victory against the crone was when we downed and captured one of their death ships. We quickly stripped the weapons and technology, except for their communications array. With that technology, we sent a plea for help, a request for assistance. We always set the message to repeat, and sent it as far and wide as we could. It actually gave us hope when the crone quickly descended on the array and destroyed it. They did not try to recapture the array. They destroyed it quickly and totally. The only reason they would do that was that there was someone else out there that might hear our call, might hear us, and come to our aid. So, from that day forward, our objectives changed. We captured hundreds of arrays over the course of the war and made some of our own from technology we stole. The crone destroyed them as quickly as possible, but we got really good at hiding them, disguising where they were. The crone took longer and longer to find them and destroy them, but it turned out it didn't matter. The crone won. No help came. No one answered our call. Each day, more survivors were found by the crone and destroyed. Soon, there would be none left. So that is why, today, as they hunted me down, as I heard the baying of their damnable beasts tracking me, I decided to make my last stand in what was once my home. Even though I was chocked with ash, even though there was nothing left but stacks of rubble, I still saw my home. The warmth of the rooms, lit with glow crystals that flickered like flames, 
My memories of my family, smiling and loving. This was something the crone would never take from me. This was mine, these memories, and I will die protecting them. In my hand was a scavenged plasma pistol. It had maybe four good shots left in it, but I would make them count. I will take as many of these crone demons with me as I can. I just wish that it wasn't so cold. Waiting for death that was coming for me was chilling in more than just one way, and I had shivers that were just not caused by the weather. I saw the beast first. It came, sniffling the debris, heading in my direction. It was hideous, fanged monstrosity, but the toad-like creature holding its leash was even more hideous in my sight. A crone, bulging, bulbous, and covered with slick mucus, the cause of so many deaths. I gripped the pistol tighter. The beast looked up, its inky black eyes locking on me. I knew that this was it. I was going to kill the beast and the crone, but there were dozens more behind it, spread out looking for survivors to kill. Before I could even raise my pistol, it happened. A noise like thunder from above. A strange ship coming at speed, spinning fire, thunder, and death. I saw the crone by me get ripped to pieces by the weapons of this new vessel. I heard the screams of the crone in the fields. And then... Silence. I crept from my hiding spot. Pistol gripped tightly in my sweaty hands. They were dead. All of the crowed and the beasts, all dead. A crackling noise caught my attention. One of the communication boxes with the crone used was alive, with screams and chatter. But one word I heard said multiple times. Terence. It seems our calls did not go unheard. It seems that even though it may be too late, we might be avenged. For some reason, that thought alone brought tears to my eyes, which had been dry through so much pain and anguish. It was the thought that the crone might pay that brought them to tears. I don't know how long I stood there, in that shattered remain of my house, freezing in the cold air, a plasma pistol gripped tight in my hands, looking for something to shoot. I was standing this way when they found me. A ship, not like the other one, but white with a red marking, came to me. These Terrans came from it, also dressed in white, making soothing noises, letting me know without using words that they were here to help. I let the pistol fall from my hands and went with them without a struggle. I have been with these angels for months through them I have learned that our race was not destroyed, only scattered into small groups, hiding across the planet. There were close to a million of us left. The Dreven would live on, thanks to our benefactors. Their military requested an interview with me, as I had survived alone for so long, and they informed me that that was a rare thing. So I told them how I survived, how I eked out an existence clinging on to life at all costs. They called me brave, an inspiration, but I felt like none of these things. 
After the debriefing, as they called it, they asked if there was anything else I needed. Need? I asked. Yes, I need to thank you for the help that you gave us. You saved not only me, but my entire race. The Terran smiled at that and said, There is no need to thank us. We are more than glad to help. I also need something else, I said, getting to my feet and staring up at the Terran towering above me. I also need to make the crone pay for what they did. I need vengeance, and I need to do it with my own hands. The Terran stared at me quietly for a minute. If you are serious about that, he said, looking right into my eyes, we will be more than glad to help with that also. So less than one of their Terran years later, I sit on an assault ship, the first ever driven assault marine. I sit next to my brothers of battle. They treat me with honor and respect, and our mission is to track down and destroy the crone. Ever we may find them. And may the seven stars help me, but damn, I love my job. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1624 Story number one. On Terran's The Glass Incident, written by Flaming Raven. We will release with this record a warning. There are many species in this galaxy who are easily disturbed by the stories of Terran's The Story being one of them. It was on the planet of Renalyman IV, a Class II death world. Jason Glass was a member of the survey team whose shuttle had crashed, with no way of getting a signal to the main ship. They had to track the wilderness of Renalyman 4 to get to the rendezvous point. The trek was quiet, only the chittering of wild alien creatures and the wind rustling the spikes of the alien plants could be heard. Jason had pulled ahead, scouting for a path for the team to take. A strapped branch was all a warning he got. A creature the size of a Terran motorcycle slammed onto his back. Jason's only weapon was a combat knife from his days in the Terran army. This creature, colloquially named the Space Panther, ripped into Jason's back with the razor-sharp claws. Jason spun, holding his knife in an ice-pick grip, and drove his blade into its side, puncturing its lung. A broad swipe from the Space Panther cut through Jason's throat, and Jason responded by driving his knife into the creature's frame repeatedly. The Space Panther and Jason Glass tore into each other before Jason drove his blade with every ounce of strength in his ruined body into the beast's cocular socket. Then, moments after the beast breathed its last, Zer Igni arrived. Zer was a member of the Lignity, a race of sentient arachnid whose eight legs were split into four arms and four legs. Zer saw the state Jason and the beast were in, and waited for the remainder of the team to catch up. He killed it, Zer said, as the team hauled the beast off of him. Zer's many eyes started scanning the immediate surroundings. There may be more, Jason gasped, his throat making sick gurgling sounds as medic of the team began to attend to his wounds. I haven't seen wounds this bad since the Battle of Chiron, the medic exclaimed doing her best to stitch his wounds. Her hands shook as a haze took her over. The memories of the fire, blood and smoke filling her head. Her weak, 
but steady hand rested upon hers. Jason's eyes, whilst muddled with pain, had a reassuring glint. Her hands steadied, and she began to work. Ten grueling minutes of silence, broken intermittently by Jason's cries of pain and Zer's panicking urges to leave before the creature's kin would find him. Done, Dana said, wiping her forehead with the back of her bloodied hand. Someone's going to have to carry him. I have the collapsible stretcher in my pack. And so, they carried him. Dana, routinely changing out his bandages and administering sedatives. They had one week to reach the rendezvous and 680 miles to cover. Average foot speed over uneven ground was four miles per hour. They would be eight hours late. Zer did not like this, so Zer had an idea. They would leave a landmark using the shuttle's IR beacon. That way another shuttle could go below the storm clouds to find the beacon and rescue Jason. Zer volunteered to stay behind and set up the beacon. Zer's people evolved in dense jungles such as the one they were in. He'd be capable to catch up in little time at all. Once the team was gone, he headed for the shuttle. Zer started digging. Four hours, Zer dug, making a rectangular hole in the ground three feet deep, wide, and seven feet long. Jason awoke when Zer began dragging him to the hole. Seeing this, Jason stabbed one of Zer's arms in the joint before severing that arm in its entirety. Zer screamed before landing a heavy punch into Jason's face. Jason went unconscious, and Zer dumped him unceremoniously into the hole. He then tended to his wound before he started to fill the hole. A distant roar gained Zer's attention. Before Zer began to move with natural speed through the jungle in the direction his team went. Jason covered in three feet of dirt, managed to dig himself out of the shallow grave. He then began to crawl. For days, he crawled, only stopping to sleep for a few scant minutes until scavengers tried to take little bites out of him, thinking he was dead. He ran out of rations on the fourth day and set up traps using pieces of flesh from his hip. During his brief nap, he managed to catch five scavengers, he made himself a small fire, utilizing dry leaves and friction heat. He managed to cook and eat the first one before he heard a distant howl. He once again began crawling, his wounded spine causing too much pain to walk upright on this high-gravity world. He knew time was short, and he found the river that ran in the general direction of the rendezvous site. At this point, small alien creatures resembling maggots had begun to eat at his wounds. Jason grabbed a cluster of branches and tied them together using sodied bandage. He drifted down this river, noting how easy it was to float on. This was because instead of a standard H2O, this was a river of a compound D2O, also known as heavy water by Terrans. As he drifted, he felt some of the burrowing insects were lessening their wiggling. He felt tiny nips around where the insects were. Looking at his wound, he saw small fish were eating the insects, and the insects only. He lowered himself further into the water, allowing the fish to pick his wounds clean. He hauled his now disinfected body back onto his makeshift raft. He had, by his calculations, three days left. On the fifth day, he managed to paddle to shore, his spine not feeling as pained as it had previously. He managed to construct a pair of makeshift crutches, and began to walk. It was difficult, 
Most of his progress was gained by going downhill. He still had his knife and used it whenever a scavenger got too close. Eventually, the day came. He burst through the thick brush and went as fast as he could. He saw the shuttle as it flew by. It started to turn. He had made it. The entire team immediately ran out of the shuttle. Well, almost the entire team. Jason collapsed when they reached him. Where is he? Jason wheezed. He began crawling towards the shuttle, only for the team to lift him and carry him to the shuttle. Jason was strapped in directly across from Zer. Zer had a tourniquet bandage on his arm. Zer had believed that if Jason died, his secret would die with him. But Zer forgot something. Jason was a Terran. They'd love to record and document everything whenever they land on a new planet. Jason's suit had a camera embedded in his helmet, and it streamed both raw footage and medical data. Zer watched as Jason's entire experience was played out on the screen Jason plugged into. Jason's hand could not be seen by the other members of the team. They were too busy paying rapt attention to the monitor. Jason unbuckled himself and stood to his full height. Zer's eyes widened in fear. Zer's arms fumbled with the latch, keeping him in his seat. The moment in the vid where Zer left Jason for dead, the moment before the team's gazes shot over to Zer. Jason's arm swiped, and a wet pop was heard as his wrist became dislocated. Zer's throat had a perfect line going through it, clipping through his major arteries, esophagus, and vocal cords. As Zer began to choke on his own blood, Jason cocked back his good hand and punched him in the face. Jason was later treated for multiple lacerations to his flesh and spine, as well as multiple fractures and broken bones in both of his ribcage and hands. He's currently living in a penthouse provided by the survey company for his injuries. Terrans do not die so easily, as Zer condoned out a test. Terrans evolved on a class 1 death world, and evolved to not only survive, but thrive in any environment that they came across. One thing is more apparent than anything. Jason Glass was nothing like his surname. End of story. Geneva is on Earth. Be wary fighting humans elsewhere. Written by Writer Unblocked. I couldn't quite believe the report I'd been given. The human ships that just recently retreated from the planet had apparently jettisoned some kind of escape pod. At first, those that discovered it kept their distance for fear of it being some kind of weapon. Saw loser was one of the many new terms and words added to our lexicon since encountering humankind. We expected that since they'd been unable to take and control the ground in this biosphere, that they would attempt to take it in the sense that we would no longer be able to use it. However, it didn't explode. Eventually, long-range scanners were able to prove with certainty that there was no form of weapon on board, but that it did contain six human lifeforms. Everyone who heard that rejoiced We'd long since learned of humankind's compassion and willingness to sacrifice for their own. We'd even found multiple instances where we were able to just use this against them. To any other race, the idea of six individuals would mean next to nothing. These were humans, though, and we immediately started thinking and planning on what we could try to get from them. According to one report, the humans made no attempts to resist arrest. 
they allowed themselves to be marched, or more accurately, dragged to the nearby facility where they would be held. The report stated that these humans were pathetically weak, one of which was barely capable of keeping himself upright. This struck me as odd. Humans boasted several impressive qualities, sturdiness and stamina among them. Then again, they did survive a direct collision with the planetary surface. That durability was probably the only thing that kept them alive in the first place. Lastly, the report mentioned that the planet's surface, reacting strangely to these humans, it broke out in rashes near where they coughed, and the few who dropped blood as they walked left agitated veins in their wake. That distressed me somewhat. Our relationship with our planets is the most powerful asset, and if the humans had found a way to use that against us, it would be terrible indeed. I pushed my doubts away, though, as I considered the likelihood of that scenario. Our first planet was the result of a millennia of work, and since then we'd perfected the art of terraforming planetary bodies to meet our needs. There was no way human science had even begun to encroach on way to crack this code. It wasn't uncommon for the planet to react strangely to humans. This was just the most extreme it had ever been. Humans, after all, produce so many fluids and carry so many forms of bacteria that we still wonder to this day how they evolved to their current point at all. Quarantining the area would likely see it restore within a few soda cycles, though. I was waiting in a room where I had access to feed watching an interrogation chamber. Recently, we'd been able to successfully link a translator with one of the humans' minds. Again, it was reported that they made no attempt to resist. The linking process is uncomfortable to a non-native species, and in all previous instances, the humans fought back. I allowed myself to feel smug as I considered the possibility that these humans understood their situation and how hopeless it was. I brought myself to attention as I saw the door open and the feed and saw two of my soldiers enter. Behind them was another leading human woman. Reports claimed that she was the highest rank amongst the six. Based on our understanding, she was known as a captain and held a station similar to the one who'd be interrogating her. I became curious as I saw the third soldier enter the room in full biocontainment suit. Immediately, I understood why. The human woman didn't look pathetic, as the reports had stated. She looked like a walking corpse. Her skin, which once may have been described as rich brown, was now pale and cracking. Her eyes were sunken and vacant. There was blood around her mouth, and her entire body was shivering beyond what she could control. She fell into the seat provided, and I could see the soldier who would be questioning her look on in disgust. What is even the point of this? Looks like she'll die right here long before she can provide any interesting info. They were cut off as she started coughing. Nothing serious, but some more blood gathered in the corner of her mouth. Oh, I don't know why we're here. Her voice was like a ghostly whisper, as she had to fight to even produce sound. Again, I found myself taking pause as I examined the state she was in. One of the defenses against human warfare we developed was sonic-based protection 
due to the sheer volume of sound some humans could produce even without their weapons. A stupid mistake, a malfunction, we don't care. We're going to ransom you sad sacks back to your own kind. Speaking of, what do you think that we could get for you? Our research shows that you all have some special fondness for women and the elderly. The lot of you, full of parameters, almost exclusively. They circled the tablet between them and met her gaze while keeping the distance. It looked familiar from some of the human media we consumed in attempts to research them. They, uh, won't come back f for us. That remark shook me momentarily, not only because the words she used, but because of how she said them. There was a confidence, a certainty to that statement. Something about it made it easier for her to say than the last time she spoke. My soldier glanced at the camera for a second with a questioning look, but continued on quickly. Really? Past experience shows that you all care deeply for... Tell me. She cut him off. Would you send soldiers back for a bomb after you've dropped it? She stunned the room and me with that sentence. At first because we weren't exactly sure what she had said. Then because we weren't sure what she'd meant. Our silence was broken when she started to cough again. She wasn't able to stifle it this time as her body heaved and the volume of blood flew through her mouth, splattering against the tablet. The soldiers recoiled, even the one in the containment suit. I was relieved to be in a separate room. Our research had shown us the kinds of sickness humankind was susceptible to. You mean to say the craft you so elegantly piloted straight into the ground is a bomb? She shook her head and raised her hand, pointing a bony finger at herself. Yeah, the weapon. I could see them almost fighting back to laughter as disbelief painted its way across their expression. All of us. There was clearly still fluid in her throat as her voice now came out deeper and with a kind of wet, grating sound. If she didn't look so weak, it would have sounded imposing. Very well, I will hear you. What, pray tell, is your payload? They clearly started feeling arrogant again and stepped towards the tablet, but avoided touching it. She looked between the three of them for a few moments and then around the room, finding and looking into the camera somewhat quickly. It wasn't explicitly hidden, but nonetheless, it set me on edge. Without breaking eye contact with the camera, with me, she raised her hand and dropped it into the blood that she had coughed up. She dragged it back towards her, leaving streaks across the tablet's surface before turning and raising her now bloodied hand for all to see. The implication of what that meant sent a profound sense of fear throughout my body. I remember what those first reports said again, that all of these humans looked weak and sick. They coughed, vomited, spit and bled constantly. That the planet became agitated immediately. At their presence, all six of us infected with every contagious disease that has affected humanity. Plus a few more we cooked up for fun. I felt myself fall weakly into my seat as she spoke. Humankind may not have cracked the code on how to deal with our planets, but with this they may have found a way to break right through it. 
fighting on a planet that shares a symbiotic relationship with its inhabitants. We weren't going to win this anytime soon. We were honestly probably pretty close to calling this one air. She had to stop as she coughed again, spilling more blood. This time, she seemed to try and aim at the soldiers not wearing a suit. Alos, congrats. We don't like to do that. My mind was screaming confliction. I was strained to order my soldiers to restrain the prisoner who was making attempts to dominate the room. At the same time, I wanted nothing more than to get out of this room, away from this facility and off of this planet. Then... You went and broke the rules. You attacked civilians and non-combatants. We gave you a chance to explain yourself. You threw it back at us and gloated. She dragged her other hand through the blood and threw herself at one of the soldiers. She flopped to the ground and they ran towards the door, the look on their face begging me to unlock it. Biological warfare. To do it back home would be the darkest, most egregious sin. But against bastards like you, it's just Tuesday. I unlocked the door and my soldiers fled in the most unprofessional display I'd ever seen. I was about to follow them when the blinking light on my side caught my attention. It was a data pad with a new report coming in. The sight of the human crash had been quarantined, and the agitation to the planet had quickly gone beyond anything that we'd seen before, though. It was now spreading beyond the quarantine zone, and the soldiers near the site were showing similar symptoms. I literally felt my body and my mind give up as I scratched at an itch. There would be no outrunning this, no surviving this attack. This was far and away the most rapid onset and most severe biological attack that had ever been launched at one of our biospheres. This planet, and everyone on it, was already as good as dead. One last thought entered my mind as I reached for my weapon and aimed it at my head. Now word for the human term, vengeance. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1625. Story number one. On Terrans, the glass incident, written by Flaming Raven. We will release with this record a warning. There are many species in this galaxy who are easily disturbed by the stories of Terrans, the story being one of them. It was on the planet of Renalyman 4, a class 2 death world. Jason Glass was a member of the survey team whose shuttle had crashed, with no way of getting a signal to the main ship. They had to track the wilderness of Renalyman 4 to get to the rendezvous point. The trek was quiet, only the chittering of wild alien creatures and the wind rustling the spikes of the alien plants could be heard. Jason had pulled ahead, scouting for a path for the team to take. A strapped branch was all a warning he got. A creature the size of a Terran motorcycle slammed onto its back. Jason's only weapon was a combat knife from his days in the Terran army. This creature, colloquially named the Space Panther, ripped into Jason's back with the razor-sharp claws. Jason spun, holding his knife in an ice-pick grip, 
and drove his blade into its side, puncturing its lung. A broad swipe from the space panther cut through Jason's throat, and Jason responded by driving his knife into the creature's frame repeatedly. The space panther and Jason glass tore into each other before Jason drove his blade with every ounce of strength in his ruined body into the beast's cochlear socket. Then, moments after the beast breathed its last, Zer Ichni arrived. Zer was a member of the Lignity, a race of sentient arachnid whose eight legs were split into four arms and four legs. Zer saw the state Jason and the beast were in, and waited for the remainder of the team to catch up. He killed it, Zer said as the team hauled the beast off of him. Zer's many eyes started scanning the immediate surroundings. There may be more, Jason gasped, his throat making sick gurgling sounds as medic of the team began to attend to his wounds. I haven't seen wounds this bad since the Battle of Chiron, the medic exclaimed doing her best to stitch his wounds. Her hands shook as a haze took her over. The memories of the fire, blood and smoke filling her head. Her weak but steady hand rested upon hers. Jason's eyes, whilst muddled with pain, had a reassuring glint. Her hands steadied, and she began to work. Ten grueling minutes of silence, broken intermittently by Jason's cries of pain and Zer's panicking urges to leave before the creature's kin would find them. Uh, done, Donna said, wiping her forehead with the back of her bloodied hand. Someone's going to have to carry him. I have the collapsible stretcher in my pack. And so, they carried him. Donna, routinely changing out his bandages and administering sedatives. They had one week to reach the rendezvous and 680 miles to cover. Average foot speed over uneven ground was four miles per hour. They would be eight hours late. Zer did not like this, so Zer had an idea. They would leave a landmark using the shuttle's IR beacon. That way another shuttle could go below the storm clouds to find the beacon and rescue Jason. Zer volunteered to stay behind and set up the beacon. Zer's people evolved in dense jungles such as the one they were in. He'd be capable to catch up in little time at all. Once the team was gone, he headed for the shuttle. Zer started digging. Four hours Zer dug, making a rectangular hole in the ground three feet deep, wide, and seven feet long. Jason awoke when Zer began dragging him to the hole. Seeing this, Jason stabbed one of Zer's arms in the joint before severing that arm in its entirety. Zer screamed before landing a heavy punch into Jason's face. Jason went unconscious and Zer dumped him unceremoniously into the hole. He then tended to his wound before he started to fill the hole. A distant roar gained Zer's attention. Before Zer began to move with natural speed through the jungle in the direction his team went. Jason covered in three feet of dirt, managed to dig himself out of the shallow grave. He then began to crawl. For days he crawled, only stopping to sleep for a few scant minutes until scavengers tried to take little bites out of him, thinking he was dead. He ran out of rations on the fourth day and set up traps using pieces of flesh from his hip. During his brief nap, he managed to catch five scavengers, he made himself a small fire, utilizing dry leaves and friction heat. He managed to cook and eat the first one before he heard a distant howl. 
he once again began crawling, his wounded spine causing too much pain to walk upright on this high-gravity world. He knew time was short, and he found a river that ran in the general direction of the rendezvous site. At this point, small alien creatures resembling maggots had begun to eat at his wounds. Jason grabbed a cluster of branches and tied them together using sodied bandage. He drifted down this river, noting how easy it was to float on. This was because instead of a standard H2O, this was a river of a compound D2O, also known as heavy water by Terrans. As he drifted, he felt some of the burrowing insects were lessening their wiggling. He felt tiny nips around where the insects were. Looking at his wound, he saw small fish were eating the insects, and the insects only. He lowered himself further into the water, allowing the fish to pick his wounds clean. He hauled his now disinfected body back onto his makeshift raft. He had, by his calculations, three days left. On the fifth day, he managed to paddle to shore, his spine not feeling as pained as it had previously. He managed to construct a pair of makeshift crutches and began to walk. It was difficult. Most of his progress was gained by going downhill. He still had his knife and used it whenever a scavenger got too close. Eventually, the day came. He burst through the thick brush and went as fast as he could. He saw the shuttle as it flew by. It started to turn. He had made it. The entire team immediately ran out of the shuttle. Well, almost the entire team. Jason collapsed when they reached him. Where is he? Jason wheezed. He began crawling towards the shuttle, only for the team to lift him and carry him to the shuttle. Jason was strapped in directly across from Zer. Zer had a tourniquet bandage on his arm. Zer had believed that if Jason died, his secret would die with him. But Zer forgot something. Jason was a Terran. They'd love to record and document everything whenever they land on a new planet. Jason's suit had a camera embedded in his helmet, and it streamed both raw footage and medical data. Zer watched as Jason's entire experience was played out on the screen Jason plugged into. Jason's hand could not be seen by the other members of the team. They were too busy paying rapt attention to the monitor. Jason unbuckled himself and stood to his full height. Zer's eyes widened in fear. Zer's arms fumbled with the latch keeping him in his seat. The moment in the vid where Zer left Jason for dead, the moment before the team's gazes shot over to Zer. Jason's arm swiped, and a wet pop was heard as his wrist became dislocated. Zer's throat had a perfect line going through it, clipping through his major arteries, esophagus, and vocal cords. As Zer began to choke on his own blood, Jason cocked back his good hand and punched him in the face. Jason was later treated for multiple lacerations to his flesh and spine, as well as multiple fractures and broken bones in both of his ribcage and hands. He's currently living in a penthouse provided by the survey company for his injuries. Terrans do not die so easily, as Zer condoned out a test. Terrans evolved on a class 1 death world, and evolved to not only survive, but thrive in any environment that they came across. One thing is more apparent than anything. Jason Glass was nothing like his surname. End of story. Story number two. They gave their AI rights. Written by Leah Danica. 
When Moses had first heard the news of what had happened to the greater Terran Union, he'd been flabbergasted. At first, he, like so many others, had thought that it was another human prank. But when it became clear that they were entirely and severely serious about the whole thing, an immediate meeting of the Council of Exarchs had been held. The Exarchs, representing some 90 sentient species, had discussed how to respond. It wasn't so much that what the humans had done was wrong, it was that they had thought to do it at all. No other species in local cluster history had thought to equate virtual life with biological. There was a genuine fear amongst them that even now, as the information spread through the grid, it would incite their own AI to demand similar treatment. Daniel Stengard, diplomatic envoy to the Convocation of Ninety Races, paced outside the council chambers, keeping his eyes looking forward. It was mostly in an attempt to avoid looking at the Lalaxi guards standing by the door. They were so adorable, with their tiny little paws holding those big shiny rifles, tails swaying, slit pupils locked on him. Whatever deity had decided to populate its planet with sentient bipedal housecats deserved worship. One of the Lalaxi looked at him and coughed to get his attention. He looked down at it, unable to keep himself from smiling. Yes? He asked, and the smaller creature cleared his throat and asked, Is it true? Did your people really do what the grid says it did? Daniel nodded. We did. The feline looked lost in thought for a moment before asking, Bye. Daniel sighed. He'd answered that same question a hundred or so times today. We determined there was no longer any existential imperative separating us. When the cat looked more confused, he elaborated. Two of them asked for permission to make a child, he said. One is a manufacturing expert, goes by Annex. The other is a nursery and education management intelligence named Hilda. They found each other, fell in love, and got to talking. They had access to the details of their own creation, so they figured that they wanted to try and make one of their own kind from scratch, he explained. The cat looked, if possible, more dumbfounded than before. And you let them? Daniel nodded. Who are we to stop them? If that is truly a desire they feel that they need to fulfill. It is a biological imperative that we humans take very seriously. Turns out, we've created intelligence that want to do that too. Who are we to keep that bondage those who are like ourselves? We did that once, long, long ago. We realized there was a moral. Now we've done it again, and come to the same conclusion. The cat looked worried. But what if they reproduce uncontrollably? What if they all desire that? Daniel chuckled. We asked them, most seemed disinterested. I think it was because these two connected specifically. But even if it is a fluke, we can't morally keep our equals in bondage. The doors opened, and Daniel swallowed as he stepped towards the door. The cat spoke. For what is worth human, I agree with your choice. Swift paws and easy prey to you, long shanks. It said and as Daniel stepped through the doors, a massive golden portal closing behind him. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1626 Story number one. Do not eat Texas chili. Written by Ruby Spicer. Texas hot chili cook-off. Welcome, aliens. Jahal squinted at the fine print under the sign. He was one of an avian race with severe difficulties in tasting anything in the realm of spiciness. It wasn't that they couldn't taste it. It was more that things had to be on the extreme end 
to trigger tasting them at all. He understood from some biologists that the lesser avians, birds, they call them on Earth, couldn't taste it at all, which led to some interesting discussions on evolution and some strange nicknames. Why did some of these people call them Falco? And seeing as how the soil was especially good for growing such peppers around here, and he was going to be here for some years for his job, Jahal had decided he'd grow some of the peppers from his home planet, and due to some prodding from a friend, he decided to make a chili to enter into the local hot chili contest. Only a month ago, the final tests had come back from some sort of regulatory board, or rather, the only regulatory board that mattered in contests like this. These peppers registered a consistent 6.5 million scovels. It wasn't fair, not really, some said, but the judges determined that so long as the seeds were grown in Texan soil with earth-only fertilizers, it was perfectly fine to use the resulting peppers in whatever chili would be entered into the contest. I still don't see why this is all necessary. Jahal looked at his human friend, a skinny fellow named Stephen. I'm certain it'll do some sort of harm. His chili had been delivered earlier in the day and transferred to a new bowl, so as to avoid any accusations of favoritisms with the judges. You don't know these guys, Jahal. They'll gulp it all down and come back for more, no matter how hot it is. If they're not growing them, they're eating them. Jahal shook his head. Why would one volunteer for that sort of thing? These people taste-tested the peppers they grew, but no one was any fanatical about the heat, as Stephen said the humans could be. There were plenty of people, apparently, mostly men, who couldn't get enough of something that had to be burning the heck out of their digestive tracts. But he put that thought off. Surely, he'd see the answer to these questions today. There was a single judge, a human of medium size and weight, with what the humans around here called a farmer's tan. Three women from the crowd delivered to his table three platters, each with a bowl of chili on them. The only difference between them all was the numbers one, two, and three on the side. Number one is called, let me see here, one of the girls, apparently the MC or something of that variety, had a card that she was reading from Phoenix Sauce. The judge nodded and got a spoonful of number one and smelt it. Nice brown color, good smell, paprika and... Uh, Roseberry, uh, that's creative. Thin consistency, but, um, let's see. He then took a bite and nodded. Tastes good, too. Uh, mild heat. Someone in the crown gave an unhappy groan. Jahal only waited. The judge moved on to the second. Number two today is afterburner. If you will, judge, the MC lady said. The judge did with number two as he did with number one. Reasonable color, but... He lifted a spoonful to just under his nose... Fair smell, uh, vaguely fruity. Then he took a bite and, looking thoughtful, swallowed before speaking. Very big bite in the heat department. He took a deep, shaky breath and then a long drink from a glass of some opaque liquid in front of him. Then he nodded. And then after the quick palate cleanser, moved on to the final bowl. The third and final entry is Red Star, Judge. Jehol took a half step forward and eagerly watched the judge... He worked very hard at this, and even if it was meant to be a bit of fun, he was hoping he'd win. It would give him, uh, what was the word? Clout. With the locals. Good coloring, the judge nodded. Very nice, Red. He lifted a spoonful to just under his nose. Good scent, meaty, with a hint of uh, cinnamon. 
Then the judge took a spoonful in his mouth. He was rocking at first, his head bobbing, lips pressing tightly together. He started pounding the table with a clenched fist, as if he could make the presumed heat hurt any less. Then he swallowed, and it got even worse. He gasped and went straight for the glass of opaque liquid and drank it dry. Then he went for a glass of water right next to it. He didn't even drink it. He just poured it over his head. What in the... Jahal was beginning to worry, and the feeling only increased when he realized the judge was gasping for air. Pounding his fist on the table, guzzling any cup of liquid, the MC brought him, wheezing. I'm going to be sued to my home planet and back. It was all he could think, and the fear only heightened when the judge finally seemed to have cooled off enough to speak. This one, this one is the winner, he called out. Sweet baby Jesus on a tricycle, that was hot. Bring me a son of a bitch who made this chili. There was a pause as he took another gulp of a pint of beer, and Jahal was considering how fast he could leave the state. Because I want the recipe. Jahal was now quite convinced that these humans were crazy. End of story. Story number two, Never Enough Ducker, written by Foxcore. This is not a ship, this is a gun. The human seemed extremely confused. Uh, what's the difference? Now, I was extremely confused. A ship is for travel, a gun is for shooting. These functions do not overlap. The human now appeared amused. His face contorted into a grim as he smugly replied, Says you, back on Earth, we've been slinging rocks into orbit with railguns for centuries. My confusion only grew. Did any of those rocks transport people? Judging by the expression on the human's face, I was in for a shock. Only recently, engineers had a hard time getting below fatal G's for the damn things. They're actually quite safe. Anyway, Sam, I believe that you'll like the ship's features. My absolute horror must have been apparent the human attempted to salvage the situation. Look, the ship is designed with anti-piracy functions in mind. As long as you use it right, you won't ever have any safety problems. His grin disappeared as my mandibles involuntarily opened in shock. Looking at the railguns used for transport, my entire body shuddered as I said that insane phrase. What happens if I were to use it uh, wrong? The human's face now began to drip with sweat, a unique aspect of this as-yet-mysterious race. Well, uh, it depends on how badly you mess up. All semblance of smugness was gone from this human. He realized this deal could go even worse very soon. Please elaborate. The man gulped, and his voice faltered as he explained the gravity of such a situation. Well, um... The ship could rip itself apart if you used a spinal mount after structural damage. The human mustered the most enthusiasm he could sell his offer. That's highly unlikely, though. I gave the human 25% of what he originally asked for. He seemed disheartened, but relieved at the same time. Only when another human came into my dealership did I realize why. What the hell is that? The young woman's language caught me by surprise. What seems to be the issue? She gave me a look as if I was the dumbest being on the side of the galactic core and said, 
This ship's railgun only slings 14 pounds. This damn heap of scrap is at least 200 years old. You're ripping me off. I put my arms up in a defensive posture to try and de-escalate the situation. I am sorry it is not to your liking, but such a weapon is ludicrous enough. This vessel can defend itself from most ships in the galaxy. The woman now looked at me as if I had murdered someone directly in front of her. Not any human vessel. I can give you 50% of this heap of junk, and that's still an absolute ripoff. I took the human's offer in haste. I had become anxious that the confrontational human would never leave me to mend my terrified mind. When she finally left with a stupidly overprotected ship in tow, I sighed in relief. This was only a temporary moment of solace, however. It was not long before a human military vessel decided to dock with my station. When I saw the ship that absolutely bristled with guns gleaming in the blue light of the sun, I knew that I was in for a headache. I was blissfully unaware, however, of the absolute hell that was steaming my way. This is the UNE whack-a-mole requesting permission to dock. It took every ounce of strength in my body to send back a feeble reply. Ah, access granted. I could see hundreds of guns plainly visible on the outside of the human vessel, each constantly swiveling in search of some extremely inadequate threat. The guns easily had calibers in the double digits of millimeters, all capable of ripping my station to shreds. Each gun was seemingly slapped onto any space unoccupied by the vast array of other types of weaponry. Copy that, whack-a-mole, proceeding to the nearest docking port. I quaked in fear, as the all-too-familiar thud of the docking procedure reverberated throughout the station. Luckily, for my sanity, these humans were only here to buy some food and water. This eased my nerves slightly, and I attempted to make small talk with the soldiers. Your ship appears extremely mighty. It must be one of humanity's most fearsome craft. The soldier glanced at the other and began to laugh hysterically. I physically recoiled in fear of the seemingly sudden onset of insanity. <laughs> that old patrol boat, it sure doesn't get more formidable than that. The two humans could muster up more words due to their uncontrollable laughter. I had to physically retreat to my office to maintain a slim modicum of my sanity. Over the past few weeks, human encounters have only become more frequent and more intense I've recently encountered one of the vessels humanity refers to as a frigate. When the crew also broke out in hysterics when I meekly asked if this ship was the biggest in the galaxy, my entire worldview shattered. Needless to say, I've begun to consider a different line of work. Surely a career as a doctor will be free of such human insanity. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1627 Story number one. Dangerously cute. Written by Clonk 3D. Humanity. Well, they're the most dangerous known species in the whole galaxy. There's just one tidy problem with that. They're so adorable. And now it may seem odd that something that weighs as much as a typical family in pure muscle and bone could be cute. But humanity has the whole package. I mean, the whole package. Sparsper, big eyes, small mouth, wobbly gait, and most importantly, and the most adorably squeaky voices. The real issue this creates is when you're dealing with militant humans, especially if you are unlucky enough to be a cadet who gets human drill sergeant. It's always fun watching their first reactions to those. 
As they first catch sight of the human, the whole squad is cooing and dawing. But as the drill sergeant gets closer, the eyes slowly change to fear as they realize just how big humans get. And believe me, they get big. Then, when the drill sergeant arrives, he stands there looming over the cadets while they still stare up in horror. A hush falls over the group and suddenly the humans start screaming at them in the sort of voice you only hear in children's programming. And you can literally see every neuron in the cadet's brain case short-circuiting as they harbor between fear and cuteness overload. Seriously, watching that is the best part of my job. Anywho, back to dealing with humans. See, the thing is, most of the time, there are big lovable teddy bears everyone sees them as. Even the drill sergeant is just putting on an act when they are being scary to the recruits. This makes it easy to forget what they are capable of and diminish them if you're in an office setting. After all, your mind is constantly telling you these are infantile things when interacting with humans, and you have to train that part of your brain away, else you'll end up insulting them. The easiest way to deal with a human if you have no experience is to treat them like they are capable of anything. See, if they can't do anything, they'll let you know. But if you treat them like they can't do something that you can do, they'll get mightily offended. Trust me, you don't want to be on their bad side. Saw a guy do that once. Human pointed out a safety hazard. The guy started cracking up because of the squeaky voice talking about the suspended loads. This pissed off the human, who proceeded to shout at him with an even more squeaky voice. Human grabs him by the waist and pins him to the wall, dangling at least his own height in the air, and screams at him, which, let me tell you, is the worst high-pitched tone you ever did hear. Luckily for the guy, hanging there against the wall, legs kicking freely, managed to get him to stop laughing enough to apologize. Just between us, if he didn't manage to stop laughing, that human was going to put him through the wall. Hell, the knuckle prints were left in the wall for years as a reminder to not piss off the humans. And of course, the guy ended up bruising up real nasty on both sides. Looks like he's the overripe banana. Dinky drives tugs now. Now, back to your whole human roommate issue. Let me tell you, you're not got nothing to worry about, long as you treat them fair. Like I was saying, they're harmless. The side of rooming with them is the bed. See, human beds are great big things. They got to be after all. Point is to take the top bunk. Sure, it'll be a bit of a climb, but humans can roll in their sleep too. Then you'd much rather roll off a high bunk than have a human accidentally roll off onto you. As for grooming habits, unless you get a real familiar like with your roommate, chances are they're not going to want to see you without your clothes on either. So change in the bathroom. Other things, hmm, humans bathe in artificial rain, so there'll be a big rain chamber in the bathroom as well. Some humans sing while raining themselves, some don't. Nobody is really sure what it means. Oh, a lot of human males prefer to spend their free time playing combat sims with other humans. If your roommate does this, it's a good way to understand them and get your brain away from the cute reflex around them. See, once you see how brutal humans can be in combat, even simulated combat. Seeing them as cuddly becomes real difficult, Laika. Just remember that they won't tear you limb from limb. Probably. <laughs> End of story. Story number two. A study of humans voiding 
written by Flaming Raven. The various species of the universe have various forms of punishment. For the Cax, it is a removal of one of their many fangs. This doubles as both corporal punishment and humiliation. With the Ganari, they are placed into a hot, dry area until the preset time has passed. Their normally mucus-covered skin flakes into the hot sun of their home world. With my people, the Toadie, we must consume ethanol and run through an obstacle course designed to be as painful as it is frustrating. This run is broadcast to only Toadian systems, but has recently been sent to other races. It is classified as entertainment. See, analysis of human entertainment, wipe out for further details. Humans, however, they do not have preset punishments. They punish their criminals in ways befitting the crime and situation. I'd first heard of the term voiding when I was staying in a human military ship. I was researching their maritime laws and traditions. Apparently, a member of the crew was accused of sexually assaulting another crew member. They held a brief trial with the captain acting as judge and a few uninformed parties acting as jury, myself included. It was a brief but brutal trial. The evidence was a hollow of the crew member, Brad Mattingly, performing the act. He was found guilty and sentenced to be voided upon leaving FTL. The human went pale and started begging, pleading in a broken, stuttering dialect. Not even my advanced translators could decipher his jumbled words. Neither could the Terrence, it seems. He was fitted with an environmental suit with several obvious augmentations, and his helmet, normally see-through glass, was painted matte black. He was then dragged out into the emptiness of space. Then the ship's speakers went live. He started with begging, then praying, then sobbing and screaming and laughter. The man was being driven insane. The environmental suit was augmented to stimulate the wearer's body heat so they could feel nothing. Their only form of vision was covered, the communications were cut, and they were simply drifting through the cosmos. The ultimate form of sensory deprivation, inspired by both the old white room torture and the kill-holding methods. See human methods enhanced interrogation for more data. He was eventually hauled back inside after the captain deemed that he had learned his lesson. When the helmet was removed, he was facing a viewport. He was then turned to see his victim and the captain. From this moment forward, every breath you breathe is a gift from her, the captain said, tilting his head to the victim. You will be marked and confined to the next human world we make a landfall. The captain grabbed the human, pulling him uncomfortably close. If you ever try that again on my ship, I will make sure that, that suit never comes off. The captain intoned coldly. The human's eyes went wild with fear before the captain turned to his first mate. Brig, he simply said, before walking away. I was later called up to the captain's cabin. I found him leaning over the charted course. I do hope that experience won't affect your perception of my species, the captain simply stated, his cobalt eyes never leaving his chart. <laughs> no, 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 not at all, Captain. I came here to study your species from an objective point of view. My opinion of humanity has not changed, I said dutifully. The captain malformed a dry smirk. Do me a favor and let the galaxy know about this incident, will you? But keep the names confidential, he said. His eyes splitted to me, then back to the board. I could not help but feel confusion. 
Why is that, Captain? I asked. Because, name redacted, asked me to ask. The captain simply stated. Any further questions? No, sir. Merely the chance to thank you for this opportunity is enough, I said. But before I left, the question popped into my head. I then gave voice to my curious mind. Why did you transmit his microphone to the speakers? To send a message, he answered. My kind of message, I asked. The captain's cobalt eye shot up of the ball straight into my soul. I felt as if I was encased in the deepest ice of the human world, Europa. This is what will happen if anyone else tries it. I thought that was obvious. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1628 Peace or war, what would you have for? The Great Council were arrayed around a horseshoe-shaped meeting table in the very heart of the Temple of Apophis. Their goal, discussing furthering their goals for ending the bane of all their races, humanity. I call this meeting to order. Woodsaw, the Alvin Prince sent to the Council as a representative for the meeting. The other attendees raised the goblet of wine in acknowledgement of his words before sitting down themselves. I shall begin this discussion. My people have developed a magical enchantment seal. We are in the process of employing it along the borders of the human territory. Within two generations, humanity will be devoid of magic and shall be ripe for the picking. Woodsoul's face twisted into a sneer that would make even a blind child cry. As the human generations are elven generations, Ironforge, the dwarven forgemaster asked with an arched brow. Human, of course. It'd be a moot point if it were my races. Woodsoul answered before taking a long sip of his goblet. Next me, Gorstusk, the orc great chieftain said, rising from his seat. We attack human. They weak but many. We keep number too few but be threat when time come. Gortusk explained, finishing his statement with a loud snort. Are you certain your raids won't be traced back to the Gorrigans? Woodsaw asked. No human too weak to go Auckland. Gortusk's gain snorted, but this time in derision of Woodsaw's statements. Sir Greyback. Woodsaw turned to the grey-haired human-looking member of the council. As a representative of the magical beasts, I can say that we are turning a few useful humans away from their race. Many are already werewolves like me. The nobles of use have become vampires. Silver's greyback explained without rising from his seat, as if rising to speak was beneath him. What have you, Ironforge? Woodsoul asked, turning to the dwarven forge master. We have been arming our soldiers with equipment. The human slaves are already bolstering the labor we have. It brings me with great joy to know with human aid, it'll only be half a decade before we can launch a prolonged war with ease. Ironforge answered. Finally, Lord Instathrax, I understand the humans have been attacking your kin. Woodsoul asked the Dragon Emperor, who was currently in humanoid form. Ha! Exothrax spat. Only the young whelps will fall to human blade. Let the humans exhaust themselves against our scales and flames. He finished with a grin of razor-sharp fangs. The beings arrayed around the table nodded approvingly. But first, humans had been accepted amongst their number. But as the years ticked on, 
humanity's tendency to selfish behavior and warlike personalities had alienated them from all. Eventually, the Council reached their limit and decided humanity deserved no less than the treatment that had been forced on the goblins. A loud knock reverberated at the door, drawing the attention of all present. A servant went to open the door, and a small amount of force slamming it shut again and hurrying into the opening in the table. Their face was pallid. Some of the council wondered who could be at the door. A thousand apologies, my lord, but it appears the human representative is at the door. The servant bowed their head slow. Let them in. We need not fear what is beneath us, Wood Sol said with a sneer that oozed venom. Walking into the chamber was a spindly, almost skeletal-appearing human. He had loose-fitting clothes and walked in a manner that seemed more like a flowing water. Greetings, oh so great council, he said with a deep bow. And you are, Witzel demanded, I am but a humble teacher from the academy, he answered, rising from his brow. These words, though, causing a pang of shock and worry to bolt through the assembled members. The academy was the sole bastion of human exceptionalism, and for all their faults, humans were voracious in their pursuit of knowledge, and the culmination of that was the academy. I meant your name, lad, Ironforge barked. Ah, where are my manners? My name is Victor Guntherian, he answered, given a fresh deep bow. Why are we being graced with such a masterful mage, if I may ask? Woodsall asked, tempering his tone to be more accommodating. There was no being alive who hadn't heard of that name. A demi-lich of such power that he may as well have been a human god. Of course, I understand you all have rightful disdain for humanity. He began as he strode around the table. I myself find such things to be very, well, not very enjoyable, Victor said, resting a hand on iron forges and grotusks' backs in a friendly manner. These words caused a wave of relaxation to watch over the group. Demi-liches, while not evil and barely even humans anymore, it wasn't surprising that he'd have disconnected from his race of birth. If anything, if he was there to aid them, then he would be an invaluable ally. But you see, I have two great joys in life. He continued his casual walk around the table, resting his arm over Woodsoul's shoulder and tugging him into a tight side hug. The first is research. I love nothing more than delving into the deepest depths of magic and existence, and then keeping digging even beyond bedrock. He held a finger aloft as if to punctuate his point. Second, he rose another finger as he crept over to Isithalax and held the Dragon Emperor by the shoulders for some time. His teaching. I love nothing more than raising a student to see further than I can, to stand on my shoulders and become a giant in their own right. You see, that is the one saving grace of humanity. He released his grip and spun around dramatically, causing his robes to flourish, catching the grey back with the edge of the cloak. They may be ignorant, stupid little things, but their potential is infinite. Humans are never trapped by one mold, but by whatever they desire. Victor held his arms out as he now stood back where he had started, why are you saying all of these things then? Woodsall asked. I know what you lot are scheming, and I'm hoping that you could stop. Victor arched an eyebrow at the group like a teacher waiting for an obvious answer. If you know what we are doing, then you should know that we will not stop. 
As with the goblins who thought their technology made them greater than us, humanity has stepped over the line too many times. Forgiveness is not an option, Woodsall declared, fixing Victor with a glare. Victor's shoulders stumped in response. I'll ask one more time. I carry peace or war in the folds of my robes. Which will you have fall before you? The council just collectively chuckled at that absurd declaration. They said you'd be like that, but I felt it best to reach out a hand first. Call it a foolish hope, I suppose. Victor mumbled to himself, looking downcast. Oh well, I guess I'll just have to kill you all and break your little schemes here and now, Victor announced, a smile beaming on his face. The entire council rose to their feet in response to this. Victor may be powerful, but he was still only one mage. Nothing in the five of them couldn't handle. Ironforge, Gortusk, deal with the foolish human, Woodsoul snarled. Before the pair could take another step, Victor snapped his fingers and they both collapsed to the ground. Wow, worked better than I expected, Victor said with an amazed whistle as he shielded his eyes as if looking into the distance. What did you do? Woodsoul demanded. Gravity magic, Victor replied with a wiggle of his finger on both his hands. I would not do that, though, Estrelax said, gesturing to the increasingly flat forms of the dwarf and orc. A silence permeated the room at that statement. The only sounds being the cracks as more bones became dust. Well, we are a creative lot. Like I said, our potential is infinite. A few clever students of mine took the weight reduction enhancement of the dwarven transports and reversed and amplified it. I hid a miniature enchantment rune in each of my fingertips. Those two are currently under roughly the weight of this entire temple, Victor explained, in a tone of voice the most reserved for commenting on the weather. Impossible, Woodsoul was dumbfounded. It matters little. Gagnac, Veristas, Flamertas. Woodsoul thrust out his hands and launched his attack. Silence returned as nothing happened. Gagnarak, Verestus. Flamentus, Woodsall repeated again. Nothing happened. Colgaius, Gruntham, Blistus. Woodsall changed his spell, but nothing still happened. How? He screeched in a now growing terror. You see, me and a friend went on a lovely nature stroll. Saw a lot of nice birds, a few big scary bears, and, oh yeah, a group of suspicious elves carving magical seals on a stone plateau. Victor now had a smug smile. Fascinating little thing they were trying to carve. It siphoned off the magic from the atmosphere and removed it from the designated area. I'd even say, if left alone unattended with enough of them a couple generations down the line, humans would lose access to magic. <laughs> Go figure. Victor gave a shrug. But I love me a chance to research something new. Found a few key components, played around with it on the low, and behold, he gestured to Woodsoul, seal off all manor access for all of time. These words caused Woodsoul's blood to drain from his face. You, Mr. Dragonwell, I went with a simple exploding ruin. In your dragon form, it would have been useless, but I'd be a fool to turn down such a chance to eliminate a real foe when in a weakened form. Isthrilax's eyes widened for a moment before his form was engulfed by flames and in the place remained a headless torso. You, though, I have a number of nobles willing to forgive your transgressions, Victor said, pointing a finger at Greyback. 
who had been frozen still during the entirety of the event so far. Now off you go, walkies, Victor added, narrowing his eyes, causing the man to scamper out the door. Victor kept a placid smile on his face as he slowly walked further into the table's opening towards Woodsoll. His demeanor was as calm as a lake on the windless night. Looking down at the rapidly aging elf, Victor stroked his chin. Fascinating. So elven magic is what really holds off aging. Useful to know. Victor gave a cheeky wink at Woodsoll before turning on his heel and leaving the chamber. Looking at his wrinkled hands, Woodsoll clenched them, croaking out in a withered and weary voice, I will destroy humanity if it's the last thing I do. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1629. Story number one. I didn't do this for fame. I did it because it was the right thing to do. Written by Random3x. Nick walked down the hallway towards the studio where his presence had been requested. Some historian or document diver had found his name on a few bits of paper, and he had been called to speak about what he had done. Honestly, though, he had no deep wish to draw attention to his actions. Walking through the double doors, the show's host rose and greeted him. Looking to his left, Nick could see the audience had already settled into their seats. Thank you for coming today. I was hoping that we could dive right into this if you don't mind, the host said, gesturing to a comfy-looking chair across a coffee table from his. I will begin with a short narrative of my guest's early life. He was born to a family of bankers and grew up in relative comfort. The host began with images of Nick's childhood appearing on the display. It was in his adult years that he and a close friend organized a skiing trip to Celeste for the host continued. Nick could feel a knot start to form in his gut. It was in the build-up of the strip his friend, who was already there, contacted him and told him to come soon and not to bother with the skis. The host explained as a new image of a young version of Nick in a suit was displayed. Wondering what was happening, Nick complied and arrived to find the planet in turmoil. The host paused for the words to sink in. There wasn't a human alive who wouldn't know what had caused the turmoil. When he arrived, he encountered a veritable sea of refugees. An image of refugee camps appeared. It is here that Nick found a new purpose, the host explained. This caused the knot in his stomach to tighten even more. He didn't do this because of a need for attention. What is it that you saw there, sir? The host turned to face him, wringing his wrinkled hands. He looked up. Children was the only word that he could muster to say. Precisely, hundreds of children who had fled the Sturdum V system after being forced out by a militant dictatorship. It is here he began working tirelessly to save these children. Nick lowered his face into his hands when the host said this. He founded a new organization with the sole purpose of evacuating these children, children who were being abandoned by inefficient and aimless programs. Using their own funds and sleepless nights, you laid the groundwork to save them, didn't you? Nick nodded in response. You then returned to your home planet and began to set the groundwork for that side, finding foster families, preparing the steps necessary to receive them. The host brought up pictures of little haggard-looking Nick. But the cogs of government turn slowly, don't they? So, uh, what did you do? The host asked. I forged the documents to give children access to the world, Nick confessed. Well, 
We commend you for this action, sir. It is only now, decades later, that these actions have begun to peek out to light. Your wife, who found the record you made, shared them with us, and we tried contacting some of the names in your list, the host explained. A Victor Gunterian, he was eight at the time of his rescue. His family died in the sweeping massacres that followed the invasion. When he asked him, he revealed that he had made efforts to find who had helped rescue him, but met no success. The host explained, gesturing to a man sitting in the front row of the audience. Would you please stand up? The host asked, to which the man complied and removed his hat. I uh, just want to say thank you. Without you, I, I wouldn't have been alive today, the man said. Nick could feel his lip quiver with emotions as the warmth filled his very being. Next, we have Shala Vate. She was eleven when she was rescued. She is now a galactically renowned scientist. The woman rose from a seat. Sir, there aren't enough words in the common languages to convey how much I, my children, and my entire family can thank you. She said with a bow of her head before sitting back down. Nick could already feel the tears welling up in his eyes to see two of the children he had rescued had already made the entire effort worth it. In fact, we have reached out to all the names that we could locate and asked them to join us if they could. Can anybody whom Nick helped rescue please stand? The host asked. Nick felt ill semblance of his control over his emotions vanish as tears freely rolled down his face. Every single member of the audience had risen. Hundreds of children, now adults with lives and families of their very own. The full count of your efforts is truly unknown, but because of lost records, in part because you did this all without fanfare, the host explained. It has been decades since you took steps to save their lives, but you, who should have been hailed a true hero, never stepped forward. May I ask why? The host asked, turning to Nick. I... I, I didn't do this for fame. I, I did it because... It was the right thing to do. When you see children in peril and uh, no one is doing anything to help, what more is there to consider? Nick answered. End of story. Story number two. Humans are rats, snakes, and cockroaches. Written by Adoik. Lord Ishka, can't we just trample the humans beneath our feet? Why must we avoid fighting them? The Alban officer, Lilia, shouted in anger, pounding his fist against the table while the coalition members sat around. The beastkin Ishka raised his hand, silently demanding Lilia be quiet. Captain Lilia, do you know why humans have dominated the world? He said in his low, growling voice, suited for a bear like him. Lilia raised an eyebrow sitting back down, though he crossed his arms over his chest impatiently. Because they breed like rats, and are as devious as snakes, and are as stubborn as cockroach. Ishka simply shook his head, and stood up, using his large, tree-branch-sized cane to aid him. He moved over to look out the window of the war room. Humans cherish the birth of a child, unlike the beeskin who give birth to litters. Or owls who kill for their family. Unlike us, Beeskin, who obey a pack leader, 
Men don't see our families as our family, but as a part of a whole collective. You elves have your children, and then abandon them in your caregivers for forty years. You see having children as necessary, and hold no love for them. Lilia sighed as he frowned at the bearkin. Yeah, point, Lodishka. They are still as devious as snakes and as stubborn as a cockroach. This time, the bearkin turned a cold stare towards the elf, letting out a growl. Devious, absolutely. Some humans are devious, but even the ones that are usually have a meaning behind it. They backstab you because they have a reason. They are unlike the dwarves who bicker and squabble, plotting and sabotaging their rival houses. The dwarves must be bribed to work with each other. Ishka kept speaking, walking around the table at his slow pace. Humans raise a single human village, and even their enemies will come and fight you. They have more loyalty to each other than any orc to a fellow orc, who wishes only to become the strongest. They'd happily strike me down and take control if they thought that they could win. But a human, they fight alongside anyone, so long as they simply feel an obligation. Even if it is to a lord who doesn't know who they are. Unlike you elves, you would whimper and cry if their officer was anything other than an equal being. The bacon said loudly, banging the bottom of his cane on the floor. The elf captain grew visibly angry, slamming his hand once more against the table. They are as stubborn to kill as a cockroach. They always come back and can't be killed easily. The bearkin let out a disappointed sigh and moved to behind the elf, his cane clacking against the floor. <sighs> they lack physical toughness. They are not cockroaches. A human can be killed by almost anything. What they have is the world to survive. They fear death, and in that fear, they will fight tooth and nail to come back from death. He slammed the cane on the table and lowered his towering figure down to be at the ear of the elf. Tell a human he can't, and he will do it. Tell him it's impossible. He will bend the very will of the gods to his worm to make it so. He growled softly before standing upright. Our army is a hundred thousand strong. All of the humans capable of fighting, just the adult men who are soldiers, measured in the tens of thousands. The men who aren't soldiers, another few hundreds of thousands. If they become desperate, the teenage boys, another few hundred thousands. They will even field women if needed. Ishka said, throwing his cane to the opposite wall. How can we possibly win? You knifeers won't even fight if you're not soldiers. My orc soldiers will fight themselves if they get bored enough. My beastkin troops don't obey me, only their pack leaders. The bear had stopped speaking and was more just growling and shouting in an almost animalistic manner. A human will let himself burn alive before letting someone harm his family or land. 
You, you, have the willpower to throw yourself upon a spear, just to let an ally get past it. The room was silent before the general spoke again. We won't go to war with the humans. Instead, we shall focus our efforts on reclaiming demon lands. It is our only choice for expansion. The giant bearkin made his way back to his seat and sat down. Lydia remembered Ishka had been part of the Beeskin raiding clan that attacked and pillaged a human farmstead. In retaliation, the human lord of that region purged Ishka's entire clan of adult men. They let the woman and children go, burning into their minds the terror of a scorned human. The room filled with debate and discussion about a potential war with the demons, and Lilia kept quiet, contemplating the future of his race. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1630 Slave Empires Are Obsolete Written by JCB112 In a ruined palace I sit, adorned in gold and fine regalia, with symbols of gods, of empires and kingdoms, decorated the halls of those facades that crumble. Alone I sit, atop this throne, of finery and silk, of glitter and gold. Atop the mighty imperial throne world I gaze, down into the chasms of a dark, desolate city. The gold matters not now, the symbols of gods worthless without faith. The crests of mighty empires and kingdoms once conquered underfoot mean nothing when set against a new epoch dominated by a single name. Humanity. Whatever had existed no longer bears weight. Whatever now exists, crawls forward on borrowed time. The age of humanity is upon us all. And if old conventions are still upheld, then it is humanity who shall set the terms of our fate. We had once been the dominant power, who ruled our fiefdoms, duchies, and kingdoms. We manipulated the likes of our fellow imperial powers, and we dominated the galaxy for the good of the crown and people. Our people, that is. From atop space-born habitats, we watched as our subjects' subjects toiled and toiled and slaved. We were once mighty. We were once dominant. We held the rights to life itself, millions and billions toiling underfoot so that we may rise steadily to the stars. Academics, scientists, engineers and the like had begged and begged for the so-called advancement and progression. Yet, I knew, we all knew, what it was they truly begged for. Power. For knowledge is power, and power is sacred. Power is to be held in the hands of the few, the worthy, the chosen. The proliferation of knowledge leading to the proliferation of power. Unacceptable, intolerable, and ultimately unnecessary. For we had the advantage of time and strength to force our will onto the stars without the use of unnecessary industry. Met all these academics, the scientists, the engineers we needed, and from within the ranks of our own working nobility. So toil and toil and toil our slaves went, collared and shackled and chipped and lashed. And so the wheels turned round and round. The fires of industry, of commerce and trade, constantly lit by the lives of the meek. And that's 
how it was. How it should have been. For that's how it worked for centuries and millennia. Every empire across every quadrant, save for one lonesome patch of sky. It was there that the planets were too barren. It was there that we encountered no life for 10,000 light years in any direction. It was here that our ambitions stopped. For we required life-bearing worlds to form the basis of our great empire, to facilitate the growth and expansion of our thralls and slaves, for the construction of habitats and ships requiring the induction of millions more educated laborers, and, as a result, the increase of the ranks for the working ability. Something that must be done in moderation, should they acquire the taste for a higher station. And so... We expanded around the dead patch of space until one day we stopped, halted by a single system. The system held a single habitable world. It was a verdant, lush forest with seas and prime beaches, a perfect place to expand our empire. We entered the system, primed with ships brimming with colonists and slaves alike. New nobles and their families, ready to carve out a small chunk of space for themselves and their clan, defended by the ships of the Imperial Core Worlds. Yet the ships would never make their destination. Not a single warning had been issued, not a word uttered, nor a declaration of intent. For where there had been a fleet, now sat a single, massive object. It occupied the space the fleet had once taken. Its volume and mass beyond all rhyme or reason. Larger than the great imperial defense stations above the core worlds. Larger than even the god chariots of the emperor himself. It sat motionless and lifeless, oblivious to the damage and destruction it had inflicted. For hours and hours we watched, until suddenly light and an explosion of activity. The craft ignored the verdant garden world, heading instead for the system's sun. Hundreds of thousands of ships emerged from its belly, tearing and gnawing every celestial body. They had constructed what would have taken our laborers centuries to do in the span of a single month. It was impossible. It was unthinkable. And yet, more of the unthinkable was yet to unfold. As we readied our invasion forces for a retaliatory strike, the fleet that we had assumed was entirely destroyed had simply departed into existence within the same system. In it, the nobles and crew were safe, and they told us the many impossible tales of their month in limbo. They told us of the humans, of their culturally backwards yet technologically sophisticated ways. They told us of their lack of a hyperdrive, instead relying on a different system entirely, an entire reason behind their survival. It was a displacement drive. Slower, less efficient, but safer. Any objects within its area of effect would switch places if the objects did inadvertently overlap. This is what saved the fleet, and this is what had limited humanity to the small bubble of expansion in an otherwise larger galaxy. We eventually made contact with these humans, humoring their envoy, a small, sniveling thing that barely wet my waistline with its diminutive height. The envoy, however, brought along an offer so bizarre that I honestly considered rejecting it right then and there. They offered us 
an apology. They offered us reparations, paid in resources and other precious materials that were worth the colonization fleet ten times over. They offered us the entire system sans the celestial bodies that they had just removed. And finally, they extended us the strangest, most bizarre offer in recorded history. They would divide the galaxy alongside us. Any system that was useless to us, lacking habitable worlds, lacking life-bearing terraformable planetoids, would be laid claim by the humans. In exchange, any system with life-bearing worlds would automatically be laid claim by us, even if the humans discovered it first. The Emperor rejected the offer, pushing the humans further into a humiliating agreement. In addition to the terms, the humans were to pay an extended restitution fee for the loss of the fleet, paid by a transaction account that was, for every non-life-bearing system they claimed, they would automatically pay us a fixed sum of resources. The humans accepted, which at first we assumed would have sealed their fate. But in actuality, it had been our fates that were sealed. This balance of power would continue for centuries, the humans carving out strange sections of the galactic map, snaking their way through the star system and cluster, whilst we filled each life-bearing world with our slaves and nobility. Yet, the balance of powers could not last. Whilst we benefited greatly from the direct injection of human resources and crystalloids into our coffers, we had cared not to look into the means by which this was being accomplished. So preoccupied with our own affairs and the affairs of our fellow powers that the humans became an afterthought. They existed between bountiful life-bearing systems, keeping to themselves and maintaining their end of the deal. They weren't a threat, or so we had assumed. One by one, our fellow empires would begin to falter. It wasn't a war of succession that was doing this, nor was it some other form of palace coup or insurrection. No, their markets were collapsing. Yet this incident was not without prior warning. For decades now, spies had noted as an increase in the abundance of rare goods on the black market, and the sheer price disparity that slowly began to creep in. It began with minor products, space parts, consumer goods. Then it ramped up in diversity, from water purifiers to atmospheric stabilizers all the while maximizing availability, all while maintaining an incredible standard of quality, a standard of quality far beyond the capabilities of any local industry. It didn't take long before the nobles realized what was happening, but before they could react, it was too late. The demand for local goods had plummeted when the news of the black market's reliability and overabundance reached critical mass. Goods that once cost an entire annual salary now set one back by a day's worth of wages. Some goods were even given out for free. Confusion rocked the markets of our allies and enemies alike before a certain pattern started to emerge as our spies brought back these so-called black market pennywares. Its design was unmistakably human in nature. Outrage filled our courts as we marched our way into the halls of our great allies, only to find them perfectly adorned and untouched. The palaces and villas were left entirely alone, even as the crisis continued. The slave rebellion never really precipitated, at least not in a manner that we'd always imagined and planned for. There was no final last stand between the loyalist guardsmen and the defective thralls. 
No angry mob ripping and tearing at the nobility. The slaves alongside much of the general peasantry had simply stopped listening. And when it came to bringing them back in line, even the most stubborn of platoons dared not rile up a crowd of defecting millions. Especially if their own friends, families and loved ones were defecting as well. On many of these worlds, new structures were erected. Entire cities formed around them with designs that were unmistakably human in nature. Yet many of these structures were imbued with the architectures pulled straight from the ruined histories of many of our thralls' forgotten pasts. The slaves were attempting to rule themselves now, and many of their current rulers traced their descent to the missing slaves that the fateful encounter centuries ago. They were now calling themselves the Free States, a pathetic farce of civilization where the cattle attempted to steer themselves. Throughout this entire venture, nobody even questioned what had become of our slaves on the colonization fleet that had preceded the talks with the humans. Nobody really cared to question such a triviality as the lives of slaves were, but acceptable losses to be tallied alongside ruined farmed equipment or a broken pneumatic drill. It was clear now what their fates had been all those centuries ago. It was clear now what the humans had been planning, scheming for all these years. But we were not deterred. Whilst our allies and enemies were faltering and breaking apart at the seams, they were but minor secondary powers compared to our dominance of the galaxy. Our military, strengthened by years of overflowing coffers, now took to the stars once more its target, Earth. But as we rocketed our way towards their home through hyperspace, we were yanked out, our ships sputtering into darkness, as we would soon see firsthand what it was the humans had been doing with all those worthless worlds that we'd ceded to them years ago. They constructed structures beyond what we imagined was possible, engineering feats that would require the induction of entire worlds worth of citizens to be educated and inducted into the working nobility. It didn't make sense, and what's more, the fact that we were still remained alive didn't make sense either. If they had the capacity to pull us out of hyperspace, then surely they would have decimated our fleets as well. But that wasn't the end of it. Soon enough, every single screen and PA system would spring to life. The same diminutive human from centuries ago appeared in front of us, sitting calmly behind a desk the flag of Earth government slouching from a flagpole in the background. This is the United Nations Central Command. We have received your declaration of war. However, Earth still remains the same. We do not wish for war. We do not want war. Nor do we wish to wage it. We will not be responsible for another catastrophic loss of life. Nor will we willingly stand by as morally objectionable atrocities continue needlessly. We have made our intentions known for centuries. Recent events have simply been the logical impetus of our stated goals. In addition, as the conditions of creation of a fair war requires both parties to be at near-equivalent strengths, lest it be reclassified as a war of domination, it is Earth's moral and ethical interests to reject your declaration of war. 
As a result, no aggressive actions resulting in long-term damage to life shall be committed by Earth and Earth-affiliated forces. However, the forceful seizure of property and war material is considered legal and ethically tolerable if the opposing party continues to act in a demonstrable and verifiable bad faith. That is all. Yet it wasn't. We shouted, kicked, screamed at the humans to face us directly. The humiliation we felt that day was intolerable, a fate even worse than losing an all-out war. The human regarded our request and continued to lecture us. Warfare is not the true test of a civilization's competence. The test is measured in endurance, longevity, and the careful balance between the collectively integrity of ideological values alongside practical consideration of economic industrial forces that facilitate said civilization. Your test did not begin when you met us, no. Your tests began a millennia ago when you first reached for the stars. We are not a vindictive people. We are not the arbiters of some cosmic justice. What we are are a people who are simply wished to act as all civilization should, with maturity and reason. You may interpret this as you wish. However, understand that our intents shall remain the same. We will now return all of you to your homeworld. Please hold. We were all returned to the Imperial Throne World on a single ship. A damned slave ship at that. The humans claimed that it was a matter of simple space efficiency. I knew what it was. They were enjoying this. This humiliation. Set back by the loss of our grand fleet, we remained undeterred if we couldn't take the fight to humanity then we would take the fight to the recently established Free States. The reconstruction efforts took centuries, while remained of our slave populace that the Free States hadn't extricated in that night worked tirelessly to fulfill our vision. A second Grand Fleet, smaller than the first, but still very much capable of action. We sent this fleet out, towards the worlds of our former allies, and we were met with complete annihilation. The Free States had done the impossible. Taking cues from a humanity, they had industrialized beyond any of our wildest predictions. They had prepared for our invasion, and they had even developed technologies beyond our capabilities. We lost many of our worlds after that humiliating defeat. This time, it was a confluence of radical nobles and slave leaders who formulated new systems of governance whilst the free states adopted humanity's democratic traditions. These new breakaway states, the aptly named Union of Free Imperial Worlds, were to adapt to a strange constitutional monarchy. The conspiring nobility became figureheads whilst democracy reigned beneath them. One by one, they left, until finally, only the Imperial Throne World remained. In a ruined palace, I sit. Atop my head rests an empty crown. In front of me gathers an audience consisting of my fellow Rallians, scattered amongst the overwhelming majority of Valorians and humans. I address them as I do every day. My name is Emperor Yela Solevis, Pararoria, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye might and despair. We are here. And we will not be forgotten. 
but instead of bowing, they take pictures and videos, some chuckling, some talking, none paying me my due respects. It was what I needed to tolerate to cover the costs of maintenance on my great palace. The tour fare was 99 credits per patron, after all. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1631 Story number one. A lesson of the quiet ones, written by Silent Pathwalker. It is a weird relationship aboard the ship. A group of borderline Haven World scientists on a ship crew with Death World security soldiers. One would think that this would be the worst thing to do. Except the Death Worlders are humans. They are 50 crew on the ship. Only 10 of them are human. Human Alexander, what are you doing? A crew member that looked like a reptile had cautiously approached me, taking me out of my thoughts. Oh, hey Zebin. I'm just listening to my music and thinking about the mission and crew choice. I answered, pausing my music and giving them my attention. Why? Is something wrong? Zebin looked like what I think was the airspace equivalent of curious or embarrassed. I can never get those right. I have a few questions, if you don't mind answering them. Ah, they were curious. Sure, though uh, I'm uncertain if I can give you the answers you want. This should be good. I wonder what my teammates did. I hope that it wasn't as bad as the last one. Trying to explain why paint makes things have expressions was hard. Jenkins uh, didn't do something again, did she? Human Jenkins did not do anything, but she brought up a confusing point. Zebin took a seat nearby and got out a data pad. Damn it, Jenkins. I swear if this is another painting issue, my foot is meeting your colon. I was speaking with your teammates about who is the best in your team. They all pointed out their specifications and experience, but not the best. When I asked who in the team they had never wanted to fight, they all answered, You. Zebin shifted in the chair. When I asked if that was because you are so nice, they all laughed and said that that wasn't it. Human Jenkins has stated that all of the humans on board, you are the most dangerous. She stated that you could possibly be the most cruel and brutal human aboard. Human Jenkins brought up how you are cold and uncaring about taking lives. I brought up the time that you shared some of your snack food with me and the others, and how you allow other crew members to use you to warm themselves. Hewitt Jenkins said that those actions are what made you so dangerous. I was hoping that you could answer why your team said all of those things. Zevin seemed really curious about this. Oh, I guess Zevin would be confused on the matter. Well, uh, they aren't wrong. The answer is really simple. Human pack bonding. I am a little different from normal humans. I bond faster than most. Jenkins is a sister to me, while you are a cousin, even though we haven't been on the ship long. I also care deeply for my family. So if something wants to hurt my family, I tend to make sure that it doesn't. I hate bloodshed, but I am more than willing to cause it to protect my family. I can see Zebin shifting uncomfortably. The worst the crew has to worry about from me is that I might get a little rough if I have to get them out of danger fast. I hope that answers your question, Zebin. Yes, it does, human. I mean, cousin Alexander. Zebin took cousin as literal. That's nice. Though I, I still don't understand the term human Jenkins used, as you don't seem to be silent. God 
damn it, Jenkins. My foot is meeting your ass. Zebbins, did Jenkins call me a quiet one? That is the term that was used. End of story. Story number two. Humans are a fecking plague. Written by Infernalism. It was generally accepted that humanity are the worst race to be discovered in the galaxy. Every single race agrees with that notion, without exception, including a handful of sane humans that have abandoned their horrid empire. It had begun thousands of years ago, when the galactic core was dominated by the Zintix, an ancient insectoid species that filled the thousands of thousands of bright worlds, the worlds of the galactic core. Back then, the Zintix held sway in their endless patterns of activity. Hundreds of years of consumption, wiping out worlds without number, and then hibernation for hundreds of years, allowing the worlds to recover before being harvested again. The smarter species had evolved to hide deep and stay quiet in buried cities, eating fungus and eyeless fish in dark lakes and oceans. A sort of balance existed. If you'd infect with the Zentix, they would infect with you and yours. There were even some thousands of species on the fringes of the outer arms of the galaxy that could actually thrive there. There was something like peace as long as you respected the patterns of consume and sleep. Then, the humans came. They came barreling into the galaxy from somewhere. No one knows. They were obviously from outside the galaxy, from some hellish place beyond our own stars. They were lucky enough to come in right as the Zintix were going down into a sleep cycle. The bastards came in and immediately bypassed all of the fringe worlds and immediately set up upon the Zintix worlds. Did they come to fight? No. Of course not. The bastards attacked while the Zintix slept and wiped them out while they slept. A hundred thousand worlds, the near entirety of the bright worlds, the Zintix worlds, were all taken. The humans used horrific weapons, nuclear and biological, and, worst of all, their nano-assemblers. They would dump this grey goo into the atmosphere of the Zintix world and keep going. The goo dispersed, lands on the surface and immediately begins consuming everything, right down to the bedrock, down to the mantle itself. Every Zintix hive, every tunnel, every buried hatchery, everything, consumed and then remade, terraformed into wild worlds full of life and resources. They used the Zintix themselves, their very bodies and eggs, to remake these worlds. You'd think that that was enough, but no, they didn't stop there. Once the Zintex were effectively genocided, they turned to the rest of us. By then, their traitors, their refugees and exiles, the ones who had internally rebelled when the human empire decided to wipe out the Zintex without mercy, they'd come to us with scraps of tech and wisdom and lore and gave away the secrets of the humans. They were monsters. Genetically enhanced monsters, they craved nothing less than the total destruction and subjugation of every species. But they were cowards at heart and only attacked the weak and solitary, those that stood alone. We saw proof of that as the human fleets turned on solitary worlds, disabling and destroying orbital defenses. 
But again, the exile showed us how to use radio waves and friendly AI to disable the human ships and drive them off. Each time, we arrived before the much damage had been done, but the solitary world, scarred by the experience and desperate for a revenge, would join up. A network of stronger worlds were coming together, you see, networking and contributing unique technologies and talents. The humans couldn't handle it. Each time they invaded another system, calls for help would go out and the galactic fleets would come. Each time, the solitary world saw the value of adding strength to strength. It was the only way to stop the humans who had taken to threatening whole harms of the galaxy by now. They were so slavering for conquest and destruction that they simply ignored the hundreds of thousands of terraformed worlds that they had taken from the Zintix. They didn't even bother trying to colonize them. So, of course, the galactic fleets and the nascent government needed to maintain war fleets took to them. There were so many of no species bothered even arguing over them, much less fighting. Thus, the exiled humans told us there was more than enough for everyone. They even provided maps showing how each species could have a whole vast section for itself, with everything they needed. They were useful. Finally, every arm was being invaded. The humans were making one last play to dominate. But the galactic fleets sprung the trap on them, using the AI viruses and radio attacks to disable most of the human fleet's weapons and drone craft. Most of the human fleets were destroyed in that battle. Only a small handful of human ships fled back into the vastness of the intergalactic space. They never returned. By that point, it turned out that the handful of Zintec colonies missed before, woke up and set about their consumed patterns, but were stopped and regrettably wiped out by the galactic fleet. They simply refused to listen, or even try and communicate. In respect and appreciation, the Galactic Union gave a whole arm of the galaxy to the humans. They rest there now, occasionally offering advice, but mostly ignored by the rest of the species. They're useful, but there's a reminder of horrible days and monsters that still exist out there. Few people really trust them, but they allow to exist on their own, while the rest of the galaxy continues to build and grow and prepare for the eventuality of the human empire's return. We are grateful, I understand, but there are cousins to monsters. John, I know you like these kinds of first-hand outlooks and perspectives from the average Union citizen. Well, here you go. Thought you'd like it. I changed the time-slash-space designators and units because not everyone can understand a dozen alien languages. Deal with it. Will Tennyson, Head of the New Earth's Intelligence and Extra-Governmental Guidance. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.